compulsory heterosexuality is a real bitch. Ugh. Oh, I can love him. He carries my mom around in a sword. Like, totally. Rachel, just be gay. It's fine. Whenever I read that story, I'm like, Kitty, this is what you did to this girl. <laughs> X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast, where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith. I am here today with returning guest Sarah Century, comics critic known for her writing at all kinds of places, including the late lamented Sci-Fi Wire, as well as co-host of the Bitches on Comics podcast with S.E. Fleener and a horror writer outside of her criticism. Sarah was the guest for the Jean Grey episode, which has been quite popular looking at the analytics, and I was very pleased with it. So I told her as soon as we wrapped on that, because we had like a 30-minute digression in the middle of it about Rachel, that when I got around to Rachel, I absolutely wanted to have Sarah back. So I'm very excited to have her. Sarah, how are you today? I am doing great. There is nothing better than talking about Rachel Summers. I am <laughs> pleased to be here. I am glad to be talking about someone else who also loves Rachel Summers because I'm used to being like the one person even in a room full of, you know, X fans a lot of the time who's just like, Rachel, where is she at? Bring her back. Really? I feel like she's pretty popular, but maybe that's just because the circles I operate in online exactly, are like see? very much queer women influenced circles where I feel like Rachel is probably more popular than she is in the oh, general yeah. population. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to like work at like a comic shop and like that kind of stuff. So like those era, I just remember, um, yeah, everybody like just loved, you know, Wolverine in a way that to <laughs> me was a little bit disproportionate. Baffling. I yeah, no, I don't get it. <laughs> it's always one of those things like I'm collecting the X-Men Marvel omnibus volumes and my x-men omnibus collection is pretty broad like i bought the claremont ms marvel omnibus because it has rogue and mystique and destiny's early stuff mm -hmm. in it and like you know i have all the captain britain and excalibur stuff but i looked at the wolverine omnibus volume one and i was like i'm good actually and that's much more <laughs> but once you start buying wolverine omnibuses then you have to buy all of them right and there are so many <laughs> that i have no particular interest in so i was like you know what the initial miniseries and Kitty Pride and Wolverine are collected in the Uncanny omnibuses, so I feel like I'm good on that. I feel like you're good, too. <laughs> I may pick up the Tom Taylor all-new Wolverine omnibus, Yeah, though, of course. Because I still haven't read that, and oh, it's, people it's tell me great. it will actually make me care about Laura, which would be nice. So mm -hmm. I am uh, yep. thinking about grabbing that because it's about to come out. It's good stuff. I also liked, uh, I just got finished reading Mariko Tamaki's X-23 that came out in 2018. There was a bunch of stuff about people being like, why are we calling this character X-23 still? And I think that that's all very astute and correct. But also, that series was really good. Well, the fact is, she's going to be called X-23, like, not to get into Laura, but I find it hard to imagine that with logan back right the wolverine identity is gonna stick because marvel just doesn't usually do that where multiple people mm -hmm. have the same code name i feel like kate bishop is the only one where it's really stuck and even then most people just call her kate bishop i think with x23 it's because it's so tied to trauma and the fact that like that was a name that was given 
But as we'll get into in this episode, Mm -hmm. because people wrote in with questions about it, I think that X characters often reclaim identities and frameworks placed upon them by oppressors and by trauma. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing as long as you have Mm -hmm. them talk about it on the page. You know what I mean? Sure. I don't know. I, again, I'm not a Laura person. I'm going to read both of those series because I want to understand why people love this character and I've never really gotten it. I think the problem is that she is so identified as X-23 in outside media, mm-hmm. like video games and stuff like that. It's just always hard to get lay people to switch how they refer to a character even if it changes in the comic, especially when the code name that you give them is much more readily identified with another pre-existing character. Sure. I feel like this is foreshadowing to things that we're going to talk about directly in this episode. Yeah, no, exactly. (laughs) So I'm mentioning all of this because I think it is also Rachel's problem, right? Which is that Rachel is introduced as the second Phoenix while Jean is dead and is supposed to stay dead. You know, we never had any illusions that Logan was actually going to stay dead, right? Mm -hmm. But when Phoenix 2 comes on the scene, it's Claremont's intention that this is the Phoenix character going forward. So then when Gene eventually comes back, the way that it's handled is that Gene doesn't want to be Phoenix. But then when they kill off Rachel and Gene takes the codename Phoenix in the 90s, it just becomes forever associated with Gene again. Rachel has been left kind of languishing without a code name ever since. (laughs) Yeah. Despite attempts to force a square peg (laughs) into a round hole several times. Yeah. The less said about prestige, the better. But there was also (laughs) the attempt to make her Marvel girl. Oh my God, yeah. We'll get into that because I hate that too. I get the theory. I mean, at the very least, Claremont <laughs> writes it as though it is a mantle she feels she has to take to honor her mother, but does feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. with. So there's that. But I just never, I didn't like it. And it never felt right, honestly, because like Rachel having any code name with the word girl in it just doesn't feel. Sure. Correct. Yeah. I would agree with that. She's never presented in that kind of feminine. Yeah. Way, yeah. So it, it was like a step right. backwards in a weird way to like a Rachel Hugely. that we had actually never known. So it was just like. Yeah. Well, that's what's really confusing about it is it's like not even the Rachel of like uncanny. One yeah, for sure. Like it's really just. However, I will always come out to bat for prestige only based on the fact that it was like when she explains that she's like, well, Kate wanted me to have a new name. And I'm like, your girlfriend gave you a name. <laughs> Yeah, the fact that it was Kitty's idea at least is fun, but that's also like one of my least favorite iterations of Kitty Kate. Oh, yeah, yeah. Gold's Kitty. Mm -hmm. So the thing about this is because you've already been on the show, usually, as loyal listeners will know, the early part of the show is about your origins with the X-Men. We've already done that because we covered it in the Jean Grey episode. So instead, I kind of just want to talk about Rachel generally. Before we get super started, though, I do want to address two things real quickly. One is, I failed to mention last week in the Dazzler episode, I feel okay not having mentioned it because it's an alternate timeline, but it should be mentioned that the big crisis that precipitates a lot of crossover events with time travel in the all-new X-Men era with Bendis, when the time travel 05 teens are happening, is that in a future timeline, Dazzler is elected president and assassinated at her inauguration. 
I just think that's hilarious. And I love that for her. I mean, not the assassination, but the idea. <laughs> this is all wild, wild information for me. <laughs> Did you not know I about this? I guess I yeah, didn't. Um, wow. It's a real throwaway in like Battle of the Atom okay, and all of that stuff. It. Is like that bad future timeline. And we're about to get into a bunch of bad future mm-hmm. timelines, right? But that one starts when President Allison Blair is assassinated at her inauguration. Wow. As like the first mutant president. So that's kind of a fun tidbit. I also want to just plug the brand new Cerebro Patreon. I was always hesitant to do anything to monetize this podcast. I definitely knew I didn't want to put ads in it because this podcast is already really long. And I also feel like it would be particularly disjointed when we're like knee deep in X-Men lore. So I didn't want to do that. I worried about a Patreon just because I don't really have the free time to do a ton of bonus content. But I was reassured by lots of you that you wanted to have a way to support the podcast and that one bonus episode a month would be sufficient. So I have set up the Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash Cerebrocast. You can suggest topics for bonus episodes there. They won't be episodes with a guest, but I will go long on some ancillary X subject or whatever. There's lots of suggestions already, and we will be doing one bonus episode a month. I am really, really grateful for all of the support. The Patreon is already kind of taking off, which is wild. I would love to keep doing this podcast after quarantine ends, and... I probably do need to be making some money off of it for that to happen, just practically speaking, because it's a lot of work in my free time and I'm going to have less free time once we can all leave the house. I appreciate the support and I'm, as always, really moved by how much this labor of love clearly has spoken to so many of you. So thank you for that. And please check out the Patreon if you feel so inspired. It's $5 for the bonus episode level a month. There is also a $1 level if you just want to throw me a tip. In any case, thank you. Sorry. I hate like doing that stuff, but I just needed to do a sort of big announcement on the pod. And there it is. And now I'll just casually well, mention it. I think future. that you should do a Patreon. I think it's a great idea. And I think that it's the best way for a lot of people to support the things that they want to see in the world. So I think it's good. Yeah, I mean, I support several podcasts on Patreon, so I don't know why I'm so self-conscious about having one, right? But like, I just just feel weird when I start asking for money. I just want to read, uh, before we start, a question from listener Sam Schapp, who writes, Hi, as someone whose main experience with X-Men is the current Hickman comics and the films and TV shows, how does Rachel fit into the Summers family tree and what are her powers? I love her in X-Factor, but I don't know who she is. (laughs) I just thought that was a beautiful (laughs) question because it kind of sums up everything yeah it's like she doesn't know who she is either (laughs) right it's like i love this character who is she like great question she's like i am surprised i'm even on this plane of reality right now like yeah right so rachel is before we get into like why we love rachel and how we came to love rachel to answer your question very simply sam Rachel is the daughter of Scott and Jean from an alternate bad future called the Days of Future Past. She goes back in time, winds up in our present, except she realizes very quickly that she didn't just go back in time. She also hopped realities because Earth 616 is different in a lot of ways from Earth 811, which is the Days of Future Past timeline. Most notably, when she arrives, Jean is dead, Scott is married to Madeline, who is pregnant with Nathan, the future Cable, and not with a girl. So she's, like, fucked up in a million ways because she went through some real hellacious shit in the dystopian genocidal anti-mutant future. And also, 
didn't even manage to find her own actual past. And her memories are all fucked up. It anticipates the characters of Cable and Bishop, who would become much more popular characters than Rachel is. I think that those characters coming in kind of muddled her situation a little bit, but she was the first time-traveling future child of the X-Men, which became a cliche at a certain point, but was pretty unique when she was introduced. Her powers are pretty much her mom's powers. She is a telepath and telekinetic. For a while, she was the host of the Phoenix Force, and we'll get into that. That is no longer the case. Her one unique power that other telepaths don't usually have is a power called chronoskimming. Some telepaths have psychometric powers that let them perceive the past in the area around them. She's very good at that, but she also has the ability to send her own astral self or the astral selves of others back in time or forward in time, which is how Days of Future Past, the storyline, happens because she sends Kate Pride, the future Kitty Pride, back in time to inhabit the body of teenage Kitty Pride in the present. It's a plot device power, and we don't see it used that often because it's confusing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and because time travel is a tricky thing to integrate into your right. story. So that's the gist. She is Scott and Jean's daughter from A Bad Future, and she is a telepath and telekinetic. That's really the gist that you need to know. The rest of it is really complicated, retcon-heavy stuff that we will get into over the course of this episode. This is a character I have been anxious about tackling because her publication history is very confusing. But I will do my best to make it all work, and I really love her. She is the last original member of Excalibur that I'm covering on this podcast, which obviously is like my childhood favorite book. So I wanted to do all the Excalibur people, but I really felt like I needed to reread a ton of stuff before I dug into Rachel. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so Sarah, I'd love to hear about how you first encountered Rachel, why you love Rachel, all of that. Just sort of take it away and we'll like free associate. Right. Yeah. Um, well, the easiest way to put it, right, is I'm a lesbian and Rachel's probably a lesbian <laughs> and is maybe like one of the more visually queer coded of the X-Men. Right. Like, which is saying a lot because Absolutely. there's a bunch, <laughs> but like, but, you know, not all of them have rat tails, you know, like. Rachel is referred to on page as rough trade like seven yeah. times during the Claremont and years. It's, it's a very specifically, yeah, like I remember being very young, very gay, reading Rachel Summers and being really impressed with her arc. And it is one that always was good for me to attach to, I think, because Rachel went through a lot of trauma as a young kid. And I feel very much the same. Like I had a lot of things that I lived through as a kid that were like, really, you know, messed up. And then you get older and you're kind of a wreck for a long time. And like we have like the, you know, the years where Rachel is just clearly suffering from extreme PTSD and like people kind of mm -hmm. aren't dealing with it with her. Like they're just like, but you can do the power thing, right? Like, you can go be powerful. Right. So please, we need you to do that. Hey, Rachel, we need help. Can you do something? And she's like, I'm dissociating yeah. right now. But if you really need me to, like, we can talk. I think I that people don't ever slow down on their expectations of her. And I think I, I understand that a lot. Because there's times in your life, especially when you're a survivor of trauma, that you need to slow down and there's no way for you to do that right because you're in a larger group of people that want you to keep it moving right and 
that's difficult. So, like, the fact that she goes through all of those things, but now, like, I mean, you know, the happy ending of some stories, I now have a bunch of pets and, like, have a really cool by-myself apartment and, like, feel very chill. <laughs> and I see Rachel with amazing baby and I'm just like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, it kind of... Like, look at this traumatized lesbian living her I best know. life. It's a beautiful story, right? And that's kind of the thing is, is that... There's times where she's super, you know, badly characterized and, like, doesn't seem to know what's going on. But then I'm like, yo, if I, like, look back at my 20s, like, (laughs) that's pretty much what that was all like. So I don't know. I just always found her really relatable, kind of even when she's being written badly, because it's like, I get it. I've totally have just been in a place and been like, what am I even doing here? You know, or like, and like that, too, where she has like that time cognitive thing like where she's just like am i where am i right now <laughs> like what time period yeah. am i in what how old am i at this moment like she has a lot of trouble sometimes situating herself in as the present. you say dissociating right yeah i mean she literally dissociates from the timeline to frequently. me that's so relatable like i i always say like my favorite characters are gene and storm but i would say rachel's the one that i identify the most strongly with because mm-hmm all of those reasons and more honestly just like her whole vibe (laughs) like I can only hope to be like Rachel no I get that for sure I get exactly what you're saying I love characters like Storm but I've never identified with Storm Storm has a strength of character and a self-assurance that I'm not sure I've ever really felt I identify much more with Emma and Betsy Mm -hmm. who are a mess (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah yeah definitely (laughs) who project a certain confidence and a certain self-assurance and are very outgoing party girls, prominent society lady type people, but their brains are complete disasters. (laughs) Whereas Storm is an interesting comparison point for Rachel because Storm obviously has a very, very traumatic experience as a child and does have a post-traumatic claustrophobic response Mm -hmm. to things sometimes. She has flashbacks. But she's much more well-adjusted and much more able to compartmentalize and set it aside than Rachel is. Like, Storm basically is triggered specifically by claustrophobia Mm -hmm. and, like, by being in confined spaces, and that takes her back to that place. But otherwise, it doesn't really seem like it rules her day-to-day. But the difference would be that, like, that's something tragic that happened as... It's like an outside force, whereas Rachel was the one who... Whereas Rachel was tortured and brainwashed into becoming right. something that she can't let go of. And it, it makes her hate herself. Storm hates the experience she had. Rachel hates herself. And those are both... They both qualify as profound loss. Absolutely. And as trauma. But there is a difference. They're processing it very, very differently. Yeah, and I think that you have to because in a way when when you do feel like your autonomy is taken from you in that way, you know, like uh, it's it's a gross feeling, right? So I can only imagine that it's, uh, you know, especially for as long because we never really know, I guess, right? How long that Rachel is a hound. Years, I think, is the implication. It's a long time. Yeah, because she's a new mutant when she's taken and when she escapes she winds up in the south bronx concentration camp right and she and franklin begin a romance Mm -hmm. then 
And Franklin is, it's said, five years older than her. So, like, again, with the Kitty and Piotr of it all, who knows? <laughs> right. But when Rachel lands in our time, I think she's supposed to be, like, 17 or 18. And I think she was taken to be a hound when she was, like, 13 or 14. Yeah, horrifying. Yeah, horrifying. Her whole teen years are missing, you know? Like, that is yes, just horrifying. I think the third prong, sort of, when you're looking at Storm and Rachel as trauma survivors in that same kind of way of childhood trauma. Ilyana is obviously the third sure. character who's prominent, who's presented in that way. Karma is another mm-hmm. one, but she's never been that major a character. I think it's worth pointing out that these are the women that Kitty is drawn to always are these women who have been through things that Kitty can't understand, but she wants to help. Storm is her mother figure immediately. Ilyana and Rachel are her best friends, and all she really wants to do is help them work through their trauma. Like, she's obsessed with it to some extent. And then in mechanics, when Rachel and Ilyana are out of the picture, it's Sean, Karma, who she's drawn to in that way. You know, Stephanie Burt on our episode about Kate talked about how when Kitty's introduced, she's this teenager who hasn't really been through any significant trauma that often she's the least traumatized person in a room when it's her and her friends sitting around. It's a place of discomfort for her, but also something of a gift that she can give them this place where they can unburden their traumas to her. And she is sort of able to shoulder that because she's not dealing with that much of her own stuff. But eventually that starts to become a burden on her, right? Like when Ilyana's soul sword starts demanding her attention things like yeah, that. yeah kate's been through hell for her friends like there's no denying that yeah absolutely there's people who don't like her and they're like oh well she doesn't have like a very strong personality or like she's written as like you know uh like a mary sue or something and it's just like that's so ridiculous because like she does have a personality and it's that she goes to bat for her people like every single time Always. and i think that that's what we love about her right yeah i think that she is someone who will never give up on her friends and who refuses just simply refuses to disengage and sometimes that's not good because people want space but she can't do it but look at how these, what we were talking about, you know, women who have been through significant trauma, they're also putting like profound levels of trust in Kate. And I think yeah. that there's something to be said about that. They know that they can trust yeah. her when they haven't trusted anybody. I mean, Rachel trusts her almost immediately. And Rachel has no cause to trust just about anyone. Yeah. It's the same with Ilyana. I mean, Ilyana, at least they knew each other when she was little before Limbo. Yeah. But with Rachel, there's nothing. It's just a feeling. Well, actually, it's interesting. Ilyana knows Kitty before Ilyana is lost in limbo. Rachel knows Kate mm-hmm. before she knows Kitty. Yeah. And so she knows that the Kate, who is a 40-year-old woman in the future, is someone she can trust and someone who loves her and who will do anything Right, is like a lifeline for her because it's yeah. that's why she's with them fighting, right? Is right. Because Kate. So when she meets Kitty, it's like you will grow up to be Kate, who is like the big sister who took care of me. Mm-hmm. But they're the same age. So it's similar to Ilyana in that sense, where Kitty was the big sister taking care of her and then suddenly they were the same age. I hadn't really noticed that parallelism before, but it's definitely there. So 
where did you first encounter Rachel? I get, of course, why you would identify with her, but what were the stories where you first sort of keyed in? Oh, yeah, it would have been those early ones, right? Whenever she first appears, I remember reading those in like an essential X-Men trait or something like that. And uh, I remember her early appearances. I really liked the one that's her and Magma versus Celine. I love that story. I have not often liked Magma, but that story, I felt like Rachel and Magma were a really good team. I enjoyed it. I thought that like that story was fun. It addressed that they both had a lot of trauma. Rachel is very sensitive towards Magma's trauma, like actually shows a lot of emotional maturity, I think. And uh, yeah, then after that, whenever, whenever she's like, you know what, the Beyonder really sucks. So I'm just gonna like destroy the universe. <laughs> I'm going to destroy the entire universe and rebuild it without. The yeah, Beyonder. I must have been like, yeah, I remember reading that as a teenager and being like, I get it. <laughs> I totally get it. Yeah, that guy does. He's suck. so terrible. And sometimes you do feel that way, right? When you're especially when you're a teenager, where you're just like, these people are so terrible and nobody's holding them accountable. And it's before you really have an understanding of like the complexities of human civilization, I guess, yeah. and like how terrible it really can be, you know? But to her, right? Like that just is furthermore, like she's just like, this is the kind of thing that makes me like not even want to try that this guy like exists, right? So she's like, I'll just make things again <laughs> my way. Yeah. And it is Rachel who finally does impress upon the Beyonder. I mean, we just, Evan Narcisse and I just talked about this in last week's Dazzler episode, but he has a weird encounter with Dazzler where he kind of like learns what heroism mm -hmm. is. But it's Rachel who is the first person to make him understand because she forces him to understand yeah. with the power of the Phoenix morals. Yeah. Like why it's wrong that he's behaved the way he has. And he's horrified yeah. to realize the scope of his own crimes, which is again, as you already noted that's Rachel's whole deal, right? Is like coping with the gravity of the crime she committed while brainwashed. And this is where we finally go, this girl is pissed. Like she is mad. Yeah, she's, she's mad. Angry, she's angry. She's infuriated at the world that has like completely failed her. And I understand that. Like, as I say, I was a really pissed off teenager. So Yeah, and to try and do that, to try and unmake the world and the universe and remake it without the Beyonder, she does what her mother did in the Macron Crystal back in the original Phoenix Saga story and takes a bit of the life force of all the X-Men, right? But she doesn't ask. Yeah, they're all like, no. They all feel really violated mm -hmm. by it. And that's what chases her out of the team and into the arms of Spiral, which is never a great... That's a lot of arms and you shouldn't be in any of them. For really. real. Although Spiral is a fascinating, I mean, this is something that happens later via retcon, mm -hmm. but Spiral is Rachel in a lot of ways, right? Like, because once it's revealed by later writers that Spiral Rita. is Ricochet yeah. Rita, the fact that Mojo broke Rita into Spiral is very similar to what Ahab did to Rachel. So it's an interesting, there's an interesting parallelism there that, that Claremont didn't necessarily intend but that i think in retrospect is cool i love spiral i think she's, she's one of great the better weird characters in the x-men mythos i would love to see her she can't come to krakoa but we could do stuff with her you know what i mean or like you know like it's different mm -hmm. it's hard with the characters who aren't mutants but there's a lot of potential there to do something there was that really brief like x-factor appearance and i was already like all all yeah in. i was like yes spirals here well i i love also that wind dancer says Shatterstar and Adamax and Spiral yeah. tried to help me. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. 
because Spiral and Betsy, I didn't love the Sam Humphreys and Kenny X-Force. Mm-hmm. Mostly, I just really didn't care for that Cassandra Nova storyline, like the Owl Queen yeah. thing. I just, I'm very picky with Cassandra Nova. Sure. I'm just like extremely picky. By which I mean, I don't like any Cassandra Nova besides Morrison's and then X-Men Red. <laughs> right. So it's like very picky, right? But I did like the weird stuff with Spiral and Betsy in that run where they sort of come to kind of an understanding a little bit. And I would find it interesting to explore Spiral more, especially now that we're exploring Betsy and Kanon together in these arcs that are happening right now, mm-hmm. right? So Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love to see Spiral. You know, we always talk as fans, we're like, well, it's not Betsy's fault what happened to Kanon, but it makes sense that Kanon is upset yeah. about it. On the other hand, like, it is Spiral's fault. <laughs> it is. So that would be interesting to dig into. Anyway, to go back... I love that story also, Uncanny 189, the her and Magma versus Celine story. Mm -hmm. Someone asked me after last week when I kind of dunked on Magma a little bit, what's the best Magma story? And I was like, there is one issue that's really, really good. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) It's that one. I like the way that Claremont in his narration establishes that they're both girls out of time that Magma has been thrust into the future from the past in Nova Roma, and that Rachel has been thrust into the past from the future. And they're both in New York, just trying to make it make sense in the mid 80s. There's an incredible moment there that gave me chills to reread for this episode, because I had forgotten that just explicitly calls this out. But the first attack on New York that begins the Sentinels' devastation of the city is that they blow up the World exactly. Trade Center. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Rachel remembers the Twin Towers burning. I was like, jeez. I mean, now, it was a very big landmark. And there's lots of fiction that does that because it's that or the Empire State Building or the Statue of Liberty, right? If you want to show New York, if you want to show Manhattan uh-huh. burning. But I was just like, yo, yikes, 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 yikes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's happened in comics more now. than once, definitely. And it's always just like, For sure. Ooh. It's always just, whoa, yeah. And I mean, just like as a New Yorker, yeah, it's just always really bracing because I remember when that was in the skyline and then it wasn't anymore. Of course, you know? yeah. It's just one of those things that's very weird. Um, but it made me feel very close to Rachel suddenly. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, Rachel, that was a horrifying thing to see, wasn't it? Totally. It's funny when you're rereading 80s X-Men, it's like Rachel's from the dystopian future. And then to have her literally like remember 9-11 essentially is really fascinating because everybody else is in the video. Also, look at the weird, intense and bizarre changes that happened to this country then, right? So it's like, yeah, it is wild. Well, that's the same run of issues where Mystique visits Valerie Cooper and shapeshifts into Ronald Reagan. Right. Oh, my. Because he's president at the time. Mm-hmm. Valerie is the special assistant to President Reagan. And so she's like, do you want me to make you more comfortable? Here's a familiar face and turns into Ronald Reagan. It's very wild. Yeah. And also, I just want to say that Mystique being the activist queer that she is, <laughs> is like... Oh, it's pointed, yeah, right? She's yeah, she's like, does like, this make a, you feel choice. better? This guy? Bitch. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, Mystique, know? how I love thee. And the fact that Val Cooper is introduced as part of the Reagan administration is something that someday in the Val Cooper episode, I'll go deep oh, on. Oh, sure. Because I love Val Cooper, but she is the ultimate 
gatekeep gaslight girl for boss, sure right? like, yeah 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 her whole thing yeah it's like they had commentary with her that like they weren't there yet right and now it would be a lot more interesting yeah and i will say like i knock on a lot of peter david plots on this podcast uh-huh. <laughs> because he goes places i cannot follow oh yeah but that is a character i do think he always wrote very 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 mm-hmm. well and carried through politically in really interesting ways basically up to the present i am dying to know what valerie cooper is up to now vis-a-vis Krakow. oh yeah is she involved in orcus i mean she's become an ally of the mutants in the years since but like gyrick is running orcus where's val cooper because she would have things to say about one that, would right? think one would think marvel i would love to write giant size x-men val oh cooper, yeah. <laughs> i would love to read it so sign me up that issue with rachel and magma is really good the enmity between rachel and celine is interesting also because the phoenix is all life Mm -hmm. right like that is what it is which is why the current characterization of it in non-x books is very confusing because it is not presented that way if the phoenix is the primordial force of all life in the universe celine by her very nature is kind of the anti-phoenix right like she is a dark nexus of energy who must drain the life from others to survive she's a parasite a recent phoenix story in an avengers book referred to the phoenix as a parasite and i was like that's fully the opposite of what the phoenix is Mm -hmm. i think it's interesting how quickly claremont established that as sort of an opposing force and selene is a character that no one besides claremont ever really uses particularly often outside of necrotia but i think that it makes a lot of sense that as soon as he brought rachel back he brought selene back too you know like they definitely feel every character in the 80s kind of has their own villain and selene is very much like rachel and amara's villain but amara is never that important so she's more rachel's villain she is yeah and i think that there's something to be said about how angry rachel is at celine too the fact of celine offends her yeah totally it's very interesting how strongly moral rachel is sometimes because she's just like it's like she becomes infuriated not necessarily by minutiae but it's like these cosmic things like she's very upset about like Celine, she's very upset about the Beyonder. Like these are and about Necrom. Yeah, I mean, like it's a similar, you know, and Galactus. Yeah, these things that devour as opposed to creating life. These things that steal it really offend her. Yeah, which I like a lot. I think that it's cool, and I like just how, uh, just how mad she is at them because I don't think anybody, everybody else is like, oh no, Galactus, I'm very afraid, and let's work this out. And right. then like Rachel's just like, I'm so pissed. Celine's a particularly interesting one because. Amara's like, she killed my yeah. mother. It's like very personal. But the other X-Men, particularly once Celine joins the Hellfire Club, are just kind of like, well, you know, the Hellfire Club is evil, but they're helping right now. They're not doing anything too bad. You know, there's kind of a truce between the right. X-Men and the Hellfire Club at the time that Celine joins. It's a very smart play by Celine and by Friedrich von Rome to put her into the group that has recently declared a truce with the X-Men. Oh, sure. Yeah. Because Celine is a force of destruction and evil unmatched by most X-Men villains. Like it's sort of her and Apocalypse and Sinister and Cassandra Nova at kind of the top tier of like, these are bad guys, which is part of why I really want to see what she's up to on Krakoa. But that is a side note. I just think that like at the end of that issue, 
the X-Men are just kind of like, well, you know, if Celine causes trouble, we'll deal with it. And I'm like, Celine needs to kill people to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't think Rachel, Rachel never loses sight And Rachel's of that. just like, I can't, she needs to die. Like she's an evil She needs parasite. to die. And she tried to, the big thing, right, is, is whenever Rachel very first arrives on this planet and she is at her weakest The first state, person who's nice to her, Celine eats. Celine comes after her when she's at her very weakest. And I think that all of mm-hmm. that just infuriates Rachel. Like, she's just like, how dare you have done that? And I don't, she never gets over it. She's pissed at Celine all the time. That's also the story, as far as I can remember, that is the first time we see the Hound backstory and learn mm-hmm. about it. From what I remember, too. From what I recall, anyway. And at the same time, Amara continually refers to Celine as the demon huntress. So Rachel is dwelling on her own past when she was forced to hunt and kill people. And Celine is reveling in being a huntress. I mean, when she kills Nick, I think his name is, the nightclub owner who's nice to Rachel and lets her take a shower at his house and all of that and is not a creep. Yeah. Like, that's the notable thing is like, he's like, you need to take a bath. Like, you need to come to my house. Honestly, like, I read him maybe as also gay. That's what I did. Yeah. Right. I that To me, yeah. I remember actually at some point somebody saying something about how like they had chemistry or something. And I was like, hey, Rachel is like on her last leg right here. Right. And then also like he's totally gay. Yeah. He's like this baby dyke needs to come to my house and it's take a, a gay bath. bar. Right. Like, like, like that's what I specific- thought. Yeah. It's clearly a gay bar. That's my read. And she's like, wow, this person, like I feel safe with him. And she's never really felt safe in her life since she was about 12. Right. It's a real feeling of joy almost that this man understands her in some fundamental way that maybe Rachel doesn't understand herself yet, but then also offers her safety and Celine murders him just for fun. Yeah, literally just for funsies. She's <laughs> just like, you like this guy? Well, I was hungry and you like him, so I killed yeah. him. Anyway, and I'm going to kill you. And she's like, why would you do this? And she goes, I'm a predator child. Since time immemorial, Homo sapiens has feared the hunger of Celine. Like, she's just like, that's what I am. And it's great. Well, that's the Celine I love. I think so, too. Celine who's just like, listen, I've lived for 17,000 years. And from infancy, I have had to kill people to survive. So at this point, it's just a food thing. It's not personal. Yeah. And you're kind of ridiculous for like being upset about it. Like, why are you like, are you mad at lions for eating gazelles? Like, why are you mad at me? This is so silly. Yeah. And Rachel's like, literally, fuck you. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Rachel's like, just mad. Right. She's like, wow, you are literally the worst being in all creation. Like, until she beats the Beyonder, Celine is like numero uno, like worst person. Yeah. The thing about Rachel is that she's constantly getting put in situations with these alien beings that have morality that appalls her. Like, right? Like, there's the phoenix itself to begin with, which is sort of intrinsic to her and which she has to grapple with at all times. But then there's Celine, there's the Beyonder, there's Galactus, there's Mojo. Ahab is a lesser example, but is someone so broken by whatever it is that happens to Rory Campbell in that future that he's just a monster by that point. Mm -hmm. She's constantly in a way that most X-Men are not besides Ilyana, the way that Ilyana has to deal with Belasco and Sim and later Nastir. Rachel is really the one constantly faced with pure, like inchoate evil, 
that no one human can comprehend. Like, why is this happening? Yeah, I think so. And I understand why that kind of tense her worldview for a long time like i don't think that she has a very easy time liking people for a while and then whenever she finally starts to find more peace you see her be more forgiving than literally any of the rest of the x-men pretty much entirely yes and i think that that's something once again i mean i always relate to rachel and i relate to that too where it's just like yeah i was like infuriated as a kid and like would always be so angry at like people who were just uh corrupt you know like there's just something about that where it's like you almost never get over those those initial days of seeing how corrupt the world is and how little you can do about it i guess and so rachel can do something about it but what she initially tries to do is to strike out at it right yeah I mean, she becomes a little Selene-esque when she steals the life force from her friends. Yeah. Because she thinks she knows better. And it's like, well, okay, you can't just do that to people, though. Like, you can't just take things from people. But it's also why she bonds with Kitty, because Kitty's whole drive is always, the world is corrupt and I need to fix it. Mm hmm. Yes. You know, Kitty is the one who's giving speeches. Kitty is the one who wants to get involved in politics. Kitty is always the one who's like, this is wrong to grown-ups. I mean, Kitty is the reader's experience of learning that grown-ups aren't always good. Right, yeah. And Rachel and Ilyana are both characters who validate that by having known that from early childhood and essentially tell her, yeah, they're not, you know? Yeah, they're not, right, exactly, yeah. (laughs) And then over time, I mean, that's the thing, right? That's what our friends can do for us. Yeah, I'm Kitty in a lot of ways. I grew up in a pretty comfortable suburban home. I grew up in a very comfortable suburban home, if I'm being honest. I am white. I don't experience a lot of things. I'm a man. Like, there are lots of, you know, I went through my own shit, but it wasn't until I got to college and someone I was friends with was like, oh, my parents kicked me out for being gay. Right. I think for Kitty, Rachel and Ileana are just eye-opening people because while she abstractly understands that there's injustice in the world and also primordially understands the fear she's descended from holocaust survivors she's jewish she's afraid of that but then she meets rachel who lived through a real holocaust and was literally in a concentration camp right like that's a whole thing. yeah right like it makes it real and i think that it It's done in a clever way because they never feel like they're accessories on Kitty's journey to me. It's not like she just learns something from them and moves. Like, they become her most intimate friends. To the point where we're all still arguing to this day about whether Kitty belongs romantically with Rachel or Ileana, right? Because those friendships are so intimate. Thrupple. Thrupple. I wasn't super getting that. And then I saw karen x-men fans art of like rachel and Ileana like sort of looking at each other sexily and i was like oh actually yes that is a top for top romance i mean top for top deserves love too and i respect it it absolutely does it absolutely does i just always sort of thought they might be too similar to like vibe that way but then i was like uh maybe this could work i would like to see them interact like we never see it that's the thing have they ever really interacted not really and i think that that's a huge bummer because i think that they would have a lot to learn from each other i wish that there were times where when we were talking about trauma it was through 
mutual trauma survivors. Right. You know, I mean, now at this point, Kate is certainly a trauma survivor. It would be impossible yes. to say otherwise. I just kind of wish that the two characters that have this childhood trauma of like a male figure. Well, the specific child sex abuse trauma, I think that Rachel and Ilyana both have. Employed, yeah, because it's specific. both like a guy who like takes a lot of their freedom away from them and like takes away their choice. And so to me, I feel like they would have a ton to say to each other. Yeah. And maybe that could be great for them working on forgiving themselves, honestly. Like, yeah, I see them both as very different characters, but I think that there is still a lot there. I mean, I think that they would think the other one was funny, you know, like I think that they would have a good relationship. Their personalities are very different, but they do see the world in similar ways. I think that Rachel has become less cynical than Ileana yes, is. Yes, by far. And I think that would be the interesting... Like, Rachel... And I think this is because of the primordial forces that they're tapped into, right? Like, Ileana is a creature of limbo. So there is a cynicism there that's always going to be there. Rachel, as someone primordially connected to the phoenix, to the font of all life can't help but be an optimist even though terrible things keep happening to mm-hmm. her and have happened to her throughout her life and i think that that could be interesting especially because kate sometimes vacillates between those two extremes and she always knows that she's going on to other things i think that there's something that's very interesting about rachel and once again why i completely resonate with rachel is is that she does always move on to the next thing and she's just like i will reinvent myself and you know all of that and as you say a bit of an optimist like i feel i worry sometimes because of my optimism because i i'm like i mean and that because first of all it doesn't mean that you don't see what's bad about the world you just have a feeling that you need to be strong for other people at least on some level and i feel like whenever i go oh everything's hopeless that's just such a negative and horrible thing to say sometimes to people who really are still trying right and like we have so many people in this world that are trying so hard and so i think about that and i'm just like well at least like i owe it to myself and the world to like not stop believing in it you know because like even if I mean, there's so many terrible things. I like I read history all of the time. And I'm just like, it's really bad, you know. And so when somebody says like, you know, it's just intrinsically bad, like we're incapable of being good. I'm just like, no, that's not true, you know. And like, I think that that's why I always have resonated with Rachel. And like, I love Ileana. I don't feel like I am Ileana, you right, know, right. Um, because of those differences of approach. Ileana believes people are intrinsically bad. I mean, that is the difference between them, I think, on right. a fundamental level. Again, like the characters I really identify with most, I think, are Emma and Betsy. Mm-hmm. And I think both of those characters are more optimistic, which is something you wouldn't think about Emma. Emma is cynical, but... The whole, like, one more time for the children thing, right? Yeah, like, she's, she always has she will this always idea, show up. This time, maybe it will work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I identify with that. Betsy is someone who is very unsure of her position in the world mm-hmm. always, but who always believes that what she's doing is going to make a difference. Exactly. Right? Yeah, is I think so. going to help. I think that that's sort of where I'm often at. I am pretty cynical but I am also someone who is always like but if we just try really hard like maybe we can you know for me it's Ilyana too right is like 
the way that she feels people are bad, she's also like, but I love my friends so much and they yeah. believe that people are good, right? right? And so I think that there's like something to that as well. And she also grants like, I believe people are bad because I'm bad. Like that's sure. the Ileana thing. The scene between Ileana and Rain at the end of Inferno, I think is really instructive, right? Sure. Because it's like Rain to her and Kitty is like this for her also. And it's just really crazy given where Rain went as a character after Inferno, yeah. right? But if you look at it there, she's like, you are innocent and you are good. And that is wonderful. And I am none of those things. Yeah. And I don't want to poison you with the evil in me. I mean, that scene is devastating. It's devastating. Yeah. It's like, I mean, you describe it now and it's like as many times as I have read that story, it still will give you chills just to think about it. It made me weep openly as like a 12 year old reading the trade. Yeah. Like it really, that scene is killer. And similarly, like, so I didn't first meet Rachel through those uncanny stories. I first read Excalibur. And what was shocking was going back to the uncanny oh, sure, stories yeah. later. Because the Rachel of Excalibur is a much happier person. Yes. The real tragedy is that the Phoenix miniseries that Claremont and Leonardi were going to do between Uncanny 209 and Excalibur the Sword is Drawn never happened. Because that was supposed to be Rachel's whole experience in Mojo World, right? And it's clear that whatever happened there was really profoundly life-changing for her. Mm -hmm. I actually, now that I think about it, that is the Legends arc I'd love to see Claremont do. Oh, yeah, that would be rad. Also, I love Rachel in Mojoverse. There's something really cool about Rachel in Mojoverse. I think that yeah. Mojoverse is terrifying, but there's something with Rachel always kind of being able to see through the BS, right? Like, yes. And I think that there's something about that that makes Rachel in Mojoverse a much more interesting story than we've gotten to see so far. Mm -hmm. It's definitely something I would love to see more explored. Like, I, we just saw, like, that glimpse of it in X factor and it was already like yes Rachel yeah <laughs> like, you and rule. that's when we'll get into this later because there's a lot of questions about her look for the gala sure but that unseen period of time between her time in uncanny and her time in Excalibur is when she starts wearing that red version of the hound costume mm -hmm. and the implication is that Mojo put her in it right yeah the implication is that she was recast as the Hound in the Mojo Productions, right? Like that he made her reenact it. Yeah. But when she gets out, when she escapes, first of all, now this is in part because it's Alan Davis drawing suddenly, but her physicality is more robust. She's physically stronger. She becomes kind of muscular. It's a very different presentation from the very wan, small, stunted like thin, kind of frame kind of that she has yeah. in the Paul Smith and John Romita stuff in Uncanny. Now, Spiral entices her into Mojo World by offering to give her a perfect body. Like, that is part of the seduction, right? Mm-hmm. So presumably that did happen, but it's just one of those things like the character just is so different, but the spirit of her is really the same. I mean, when I went back to Uncanny, I recognized her in the character I had come to love in Excalibur, but whatever triumph she experienced in Mojo World that she escaped from captivity. I mean, if you think about it, that's a really, it, it, it would be extremely horrifying and horrible, but that is a really effective form of psychotherapy, right? Like in terms of exposure therapy, it's like, oh, you're really traumatized about this thing that happened to you. 
What if you were forced to reenact it and then you escaped? And then you left and had a really cool frayed leather jacket and like got to be on a team <laughs> with your gal pal. Exactly. Like got to and, and yeah, it's sort of like she manages to escape from the reification of that trauma on her own terms more powerful than ever before. For sure. Yeah. It's a real shame that we never saw that story. The transition of it, right? Because it does yeah. definitely make a leap and it also very much gets dismissed and as like well she went through like the siege perilous or whatever she's this person now and it's like eh. basically yeah i mean there's like four pages of art from that mini series that are just pencils and that's like it and it really ugh, kills me that we don't have it yeah but in excalibur the optimism is the thing there right because when rachel gets out of the mojo world and reunites with kitty and kurt and meets Megan and Brian. She is the one who convinces them all, who rallies them all, because she finds out all of the X-Men are dead and died while she was gone. She's the one who says, we need to keep the dream alive. We need to be this light in the darkness if the darkness is encroaching. We need to be the Knights of the Round Table. I mean, she gets Brian on board by invoking King Arthur, <laughs> which is a funny beat. Totally. It is her. And I think that what helps her then heal more profoundly than anything else is a couple different things over the course of that early Excalibur period, by which I mean through Claremont and Davis, the first 67 issues of Excalibur out of the 125. One of them is the bond she forms with Nathan Christopher, mm -hmm. which happened before she went to Mojo World. But the way that she goes to help in Inferno and all of that, like that really, I think, even if she doesn't succeed particularly, it grounds her. She Right, has, it matters, at least. Yeah, it makes her feel like she has a family because even if Jean doesn't accept her, Nathan has without reservation. Mm -hmm. And that is really meaningful to her. And it cements their bond. Like, they're still yes. tight even now, right? For two yeah. for two siblings that, like, have been cast to opposite ends of the universe at various times. I think that it's really impressive how they've... Uh, they're so close. ...continued to be friends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really love their relationship. And I think that Jerry Duggett has written it really well in the Cable, the Teen Cable series. I think so, too. Yeah. It feels really of a piece with their relationship in the past, which is impressive because, as you point out, they've been through untold insane shit. Yeah. <laughs> and have been 20 different versions of themselves at any given time in their interactions with one another. Oh, yeah. She's really been an anchor for him, too, many times. And I think that there's something to be said for that. As Mother Ascani, she was everything. Yeah. So it's a very complicated relationship. Yeah. When her protective nature comes out, I think that's when we see the best of Rachel because I think I that agree. that's like, it's something that I always really like. And I appreciate that she has an ability to extend that to people that she does not like or agree with as well, because there's definitely times where we just see rage machine Rachel. Yeah. But afterwards and whenever like she starts to be like, well, here's my thing. I don't think that we should cross those lines because of this reason and this reason. To me, that just I it just shows the maturity that she has come to, right? And I think that that's always like a really nice arc for her. The other thing I always think of in that run of Excalibur is the bond she forms with Megan. Oh, yeah. I like that, too. I would love to see them interact now because they've each been through a lot more. But in the Davis Excalibur particularly... 
the way that Rachel sees Megan struggling with the fact that she doesn't know anything about her family and her past. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I'm going to help you. And it's because I identify with that. Right. Yeah. And like they go on this like backpacking trip across Europe together to find Megan's people and they don't succeed. But it's the journey that matters. Right. Mm hmm. The experience of helping Megan and choosing to help Megan find her true form, which Megan does successfully find, her like Faye self. Rachel also learns why her memories are all fucked up, what's going on with her in the Phoenix. Like there is a self-discovery that comes of helping others. It's almost like what Kitty experiences from her friendships with Rachel and Ilyana. There's a self-knowledge that comes from helping your friends with their problems. Mm -hmm. And I like them because they're not scared of each other. I think that there's something to be said because like everybody is like really scared of Rachel and everybody is really scared of Megan. They're both like these characters that are a little bit terrifying to the rest of the team. Cosmically powerful beings. They are not scared of each other. And I think that them having that space like Rachel like... You know, you see, like, whenever Megan starts to change form or whatever, and, like, you know, how many times does that happen? And Brian's been like, oh, my God, like, my girlfriend's all, like, not attractive right now, and I'm losing my (laughs) shit over it. And it's just, like, I don't think that Rachel's like that. And I like that Rachel is very accepting of Megan, like, no matter what form she's in. Like, I appreciate that, like, Rachel's friendship with Megan is so uh, sincere and unconditional. Yeah, that's it. Well, I also love that, like, Rachel's the one who solves the question of why Megan's form is unstable, which is that because Megan was kept away from people her whole childhood and adolescence, she never built up the psychic barriers that people normally build up through human interaction. So when she looks at Megan's mind, it's this unique construction where Megan is completely open. She's 100% receptive and she's almost incapable of dwelling on the past. Like she exists in the present because she's so open to stimuli around her. Rachel is like, oh, this is like me because I can't think about the past or I start to freak out and dissociate. She doesn't see it as a flaw in Megan the way that I think Jean or Emma or Betsy would. Right. If they were looking telepathically at someone, they're like, you have a problem is how they would see it. Rachel's like, oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. We need to help you control this. But it's so beautiful and glowing and shining that you are like this, that you don't keep people out in the way that all other humans do. Yeah, I know. I think that it's really good for her. And I that's a, such an underrated little mini arc, right? Because it's, so it's good. really good. And Rachel is the person with the most walls up of anybody, right? Yes. Is like the fact that she's just blown away by Megan's receptiveness to everyone. And, I know. And the way that Megan has nothing to hide. I ever. know. It's so cute. And I think that that's, it is like totally a learning experience for both of yeah, them. And for both I of love them. that. Yeah, I mean, I also love when Megan powers, like during the cross-time caper, when Rachel loses her powers for a bit, it's Megan who channels the earth and fills her with enough life energy to reactivate the phoenix. Mm -hmm. They have, I don't know, I love them. They are the underrated friendship of Excalibur, right? Yeah, I I really would love to see them together again. They aren't like, I mean, because I think that Nightcrawler and Megan have an interesting friendship as well, but obviously it's differently motivated. There's a romantic complication, yeah. Yeah. And then everybody obviously is very like, Rachel and Kitty is such a thing. Oh my God. But Rachel and Megan is really important. And I also, as someone who's currently very on the Rachel Betsy train that I think Leah and Teeny keep sort of hinting at in both books, 
I would love the idea of Rachel dating Megan's sister-in-law and Megan being unbelievably excited about it. Like, that would be very cute to me. I am all for Betsy, Rachel. I think that that would be amazing. And I also think that there's such a... Because they've interacted with each other in what I would consider to be at least somewhat sexy ways before. Also, maybe we can talk for a second about Rachel as a sexy bodyguard because um, in House of M, wasn't she Betsy's <laughs> like bodyguard? And then... Yeah, Rachel and Betsy, I-, I gotta say, people are harsh on post-91 Claremont and I will agree most of it is not that great. Sure, yeah. I will say, I've said many times, I don't like most of the Rachel Gray period. <laughs> no. <laughs> I particularly just like the Brubaker stuff, though, Mm -hmm. which is not Claremont's fault. But I don't like Rachel Gray. I don't like Marvel Girl Rachel. I don't like the reload period particularly. I love Rachel and Betsy in House of M. Yeah. That storyline is great. And if you go back and read that, like, there are people who are like, where is this Rachel and Betsy thing coming from in Excalibur and X Factor right now? I'm like, could you want to go back to 2005? Because they are so hot for each other in house of m it's absurd it is and i see it also later there's that story too right where like rachel's like is it lalandra's bodyguard rachel just loves to be the bodyguard and i'm just like for a stately like aristocratic it's so hot i'm just like dang this is hot (laughs) like what are y'all doing i wasn't even prepared to think that this was right yeah totally like it's callisto as moira's bodyguard 100 is acting as storm's muscle it's like that kind of same energy i'm like oh my god rachel's here betsy you don't have anything to worry about she's gonna protect you (laughs) it's just so hot and i like the idea of rachel betsy now because that house of m storyline obviously betsy's still in kanon's body yeah but rachel's a telepath so it was always Betsy's mind that she was hot for, right? Mm-hmm. So like the transition in bodies is not I liked a lot in Excalibur 17, the one where we see Betsy in the alternate earth where she wakes up with Warren, you know, and is dealing with all of that. When she says to Warren like, "Oh, well when we were together, like I didn't look like this." You know, like this right. wasn't my body because that clearly is something she worries about a lot. Mm-hmm. Is like was Warren only attracted to that body? Right. Right. Yeah. Once again, Rachel's open acceptance. I mean, part of what's nice for Betsy there is the realization by waking up in an alternate world where Warren is her consort and used to be married to Kanon, which is a hilarious twist. Right. (laughs) Right. But the idea that, oh, no, he's just attracted to both of us. Good. Okay. That's a load off my mind. Right. right? Yeah. I think that Rachel has always seen who Betsy is and Betsy has always seen who Rachel is and I think that there's something really neat there I don't know I would be into it and I would love that for Megan because she would be like Rachel's family now yeah that would be very cute that would be very cute it also like frees up Kate to be with Ilyana which is my preference in the Kate ship wars personally I don't know I really like go all around on that one I feel like Kate and Rachel end up together yeah here's my thing really where I want them to go if like and we're just we're just digging into this early in the episode I say early we're like an hour in but what I want is for them to reveal that back when we all thought Kate and Rachel were dating they were the extreme <laughs> they were dating and that they're exes that's what I want I love and they could get back eggs. together oh at some God. point yeah yeah but I want us to just I want it to be like mystique and destiny I want us to just acknowledge what was clearly happening on the page that we weren't allowed to talk about right mechanics kitty and 
post Bogan Rachel were dating. Yeah, there's no denying that, in my opinion. And then Kitty broke up with her and got back with Piotr. Which is such a betrayal. <laughs> and Rachel was pissed about it. It just feels like very real drama. Like you broke up with me to exactly. get back with your ex-boyfriend. With your ex that dumped you. That you feel comfortable being with in public and who dumped you in a horrible way. Yeah. Right? Like, I want to go back and see that relationship. Because the Kate, Rachel, after her resurrection, like talking, that the way they speak to each other there, that feels ex-y to me. Yeah, Totally. I think so. And that doesn't mean they can't get back together. Scott and Gene have gotten back together like 50 times now, right? <laughs> like, you know, people come back around. Rogue and Gambit broke up a ton before they finally wound up married. Right. I don't want Kate to be out now and then be locked into a couple forever. I don't want that either. And I also don't think that, um, I don't think that Kate can be with Rachel until she has sex with Ilyana a bunch of times first. <laughs> like, That's exactly where I'm at. So I want Kate to date Ilyana. They and have then to I, work I, that yeah. out. You know, like yeah. there's too mm-hmm. much tension there. It's been going on way too long. That's why I'm like, Thrupple, why not? Similarly, in the grand scheme, I think Betsy probably belongs with Warren, but I would like for her to be with other people, particularly women first. Sure. Yeah, totally. So I would like to see, I think it would just be a good beat for all of them, let's say, to just like, let's get into this. Let's explore it. And you know what? Maybe it turns out to be so good that everyone's just like, no, keep this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You never know, right? Like Rogan Gambit, who are the one that people are so obsessed with that any threat of breaking them up creates like nightmares to the point where they finally <laughs> just let them get married, right? Yeah, totally. Fans just want them together. But that was never something that was intended to be like this grand romance, right? It was like, let's throw Rogue together with this new character and see what happens. Right. They're all flirty, you know. Yeah. But like there was tons of flirting. So there was nothing that would have said that they would have stayed together like that in right. the beginning. No, exactly. Particularly when Gambit was such a heel. Mm-hmm. So I'm just saying, you never know what could happen. And I would love to see. I just want Rachel and Betsy to make out. Just do it. Yeah. Just let us do it. When I say just do it, it's not that I don't think Leah and Teeny would, right? It's like whatever, <laughs> whatever mm-hmm. powers that be, I hope that that happens. Anyway, we're digressing. Point is, I love Rachel all through that Excalibur period. And then I went back to the Uncanny stuff because I didn't have those essential editions initially. I had event trades and then I filled in with my dad's back issues. So the event trades don't feature Rachel heavily because she's not in most of those events, which is odd when you think about it. Like she misses the Mutant Massacre, Fall of the Mutants and Inferno. Yeah. She's in Excalibur for Inferno. So she's just in the tie-ins. Yeah, it is kind of strange, huh? And uh, she's obviously not in the Dark Phoenix Saga and she doesn't come in until after From the Ashes. So she wasn't in the event trades I had. Once I fell in love with Excalibur, my dad and I would like go to the comic shop and I ended up finding like the first 60 issues or whatever of Excalibur in the secondhand box over Mm -hmm. time. So I loved that. And then as I filled in with my dad's back issues in the attic, like all of the stuff I had missed, I really loved the earlier Rachel stuff as well. I do feel like, unfortunately, everything that happened to her post Excalibur 75 and pre-Krakoa, I don't love. 
I mean, even in Excalibur 75, very offended by the kiss between her and Ahab, very upset about that. I'm just <laughs> like, insane. what was that about? Like, That's that sucks. Insane. And also, you look at the writer of the book and you're just like, well, well yeah. No, I'm not saying I love, I mean, quite honestly, let me reframe. Between Excalibur <laughs> 67 and Krakoa. Good point. Right? Yeah. But I just meant like her story ends. The Mother Iscani stuff I like, and then Mother Iscani dies, and when they brought back Rachel in 2000, none of it really worked for me. As much as I, like, I'm saying I love that House of M arc or whatever, they're little things that I can pick out that I enjoy, but the trajectory of the character, until very recently, I didn't love. So maybe that's a good moment to pause for the character file because it's a wild trajectory that probably a lot of people need explained to them. <laughs> yeah. So let's take a moment to do the Cerebro character file on Rachel Summers and then come back to talk about our favorite and least favorite Rachel storylines with returning guest Sarah Sentry. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Rachel Ann Summers, best known as the Second Phoenix, but also known as Mother Ascani, Marvel Girl, Rachel Gray, and Prestige, is a woman out of time who quickly found herself out of place. Created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne, she is the future daughter of Jean Grey and Scott Summers in the dystopian timeline called the Days of Future Past. After that story concludes, she becomes the first time-displaced X-Man, a trope that would become heavily associated with the franchise over time through characters like Cable and Bishop. Rachel becomes the second Phoenix, meant to replace her deceased mother on the team. But unexpected editorial meddling with Chris Claremont's plans, particularly the resurrection of Jean Grey in 1986, left Rachel's story in disarray. Rachel first appears in the iconic Days of Future Past, a two-part story in 1981 from Uncanny X-Men 141 to 142. In the cruel possible future of the mutant holocaust overseen by sentinel robots, Rachel, referred to only by her first name here, is presented as one of the mutant prisoners at the South Bronx concentration camp. Rachel's romantically involved with another mutant prisoner, Franklin Richards, and the two of them manage to disable the collars inhibiting their powers. Rachel uses her psychic abilities to send the consciousness of her mentor, Kate Pride Rasputin, into the past, where Kate inhabits the body of Kitty Pride, her younger self, the teenage student of the X-Men. Rachel escapes with the other surviving X-Men, but is devastated to witness Franklin's murder by Sentinels. Hiding with Kate's body, in which the consciousness of the younger Kitty has been stored, Rachel psychically experiences the deaths of the rest of the surviving X-Men, Magneto, Wolverine, Colossus, and Storm. In the present, with the help of Kate's knowledge, the X-Men manage to prevent the assassination of Senator Robert Kelly by the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. This averts the terrible future from coming to pass, and Kate and Kitty are returned to their proper bodies. Three years later, Rachel reappears in the present in New Mutants 18 by Chris Claremont and Bill Sienkiewicz. Unsure of where she is and suffering from scrambled memories, she approaches Professor Xavier for help, but is shocked when the door to the mansion is answered by Ilyana Rasputina, a teenage girl. In Rachel's timeline, Ilyana had never fallen into limbo and died as a small child. Unable to process this, Rachel flees the grounds and winds up in New York City, where, in Uncanny X-Men 184, she finds herself hunted by the immortal mutant Selene. Selene is a parasite, a psychic vampire who drains the life of others to survive, and she sees Rachel as a powerful and vulnerable target. Rachel escapes and is offered shelter by a nightclub owner named Nick Damiano, but Selene ultimately finds them and murders Nick. Rachel and Celine do battle, and Rachel is rescued by the X-Men, who take her in. Rachel, still confused, is horrified to learn that Jean Grey died on the moon during the Dark Phoenix saga. 
She lashes out telepathically, hurting the people around her, because she knows this shouldn't be possible. Jean Grey is her mother, who had survived that story in Rachel's timeline. She decides not to tell Scott Summers that he's her father, and keeps the truth close to her chest. As a student at Xavier, she quickly bonds with Kitty Pride, the younger version of her old mentor Kate, and the two become close friends. In Uncanny X-Men 189, Rachel and the new mutant Amara Aquila, called Magma, go on a trip together to the city. Rachel ruminates on more of her tragic backstory. Before the story shown in Days of Future Past, Rachel had been kidnapped and brainwashed, forced to become a tattooed slave called a hound. In her role as a hound, Rachel used her telepathic powers to hunt down other mutants, who were then butchered by the fascist human government. Over time, the anguish of the victims built up inside her, and eventually she was able to break free. Now, while exploring the city with Amara, Rachel senses the thought patterns of Selene, also Amara's sworn foe. Don't worry about it. The two girls infiltrate the Hellfire Club, where Black Rook Friedrich von Rome is presenting Selene to the inner circle as a candidate for Black Queen. Rachel and Amara attack Selene, but they're no match for her ancient power. They're rescued by the arrival of the X-Men. Charles Xavier stresses to them that his students do not kill, and pressures Black King Sebastian Shaw into keeping Selene in line. Rachel's further distressed to learn that in this timeline, her father Scott is going to have a baby, a baby boy, to be born to his new wife Madeline Pryor. Rachel sneaks into her grandparents' house while they're away to spend some time with a Shi'ar holoempathic crystal, a relic that contains a perfect imprint of Jean Grey's personality. Rachel vows to redeem her mother's name to a world that thinks of her as a cosmic destroyer, and claims the codename and power of Phoenix. Donning a costume with the Phoenix's bird insignia, she upsets a visiting Scott, who doesn't understand why this strange new X-Man insists on emulating his lost love. After Madeline gives birth to her baby, Rachel is overcome with love for the brother she never had in her own timeline. She forges a psychic bond with little Nathan Christopher, promising to protect him and to always do whatever it takes to save him. After the X-Men tangle with the nearly omnipotent cosmic being called the Beyonder, Rachel decides to use the power of the Phoenix to try to kill him. She fails, deciding to save the X-Men from him instead. When she learns he has killed the new mutants, they get better, don't worry about it, Rachel drains life essence from the other X-Men, against their will in the case of some, including Storm, and accesses the Macron Crystal as her mother once did, attempting to destroy and recreate the universe with the Beyonder absent. Storm convinces her to stop, and Rachel instead uses her powers to impress upon the Beyonder the gravity of his crimes. He's horrified to feel empathy for the first time, and finally understands all that he has done. Shunned to some extent by the X-Men after she violated them, Rachel succumbs to depression. She eventually decides to return to an earlier goal and kill Selene. Now empowered by the Phoenix, she nearly succeeds, but is stopped by Wolverine, who insists X-Men don't kill. When Rachel refuses to listen, Wolverine plunges his claws into her heart. Rachel survives through instinctive use of her telekinesis, manually keeping her heart active, but she knows that she's dying. She flees into Central Park, where she observes a battle between the X-Men and the Hellfire Club, and then sneaks into the park's theater. There she meets the other-dimensional sorceress Spiral, in a beautiful disguise, who promises to heal Rachel and lures her into the alternate dimension called Mojo World. This all goes down in 1986's Uncanny X-Men 209. A miniseries by Chris Claremont and Rick Leonardi called Phoenix was supposed to depict Rachel's adventures in Mojo World. Sadly, this project never came to be and was ultimately cancelled. Rachel next appears in 1988's Excalibur The Sword is Drawn by Chris Claremont and Alan Davis where we learn she's been kept as a slave by Mojo and forced to perform in his endless television programs. Rachel escapes Mojo World and lands back on Earth-616 in London, pursued by a pack of parasitic sentient metal hounds called the Warwolves. 
Meanwhile, the Omniversal Magistrix, Opaluna Saturnine, deploys the mercenaries called the Technet to apprehend Rachel, who's perceived as a dangerous multiversal anomaly. Rachel's rescued from both threats by her friend Kitty Pride, former X-Men Nightcrawler, and the British heroes Captain Britain and Megan. Learning that the X-Men have been killed in the 1988 franchise-wide event Fall of the Mutants, Rachel proposes that this group of heroes keep Xavier's dream alive by forming a new team in England. Excalibur then starred in their own eponymous ongoing series, written by Chris Claremont with art by Alan Davis. Not long after moving into their new lighthouse headquarters off the coast of Cornwall, Rachel hears a telepathic distress call from across the ocean. Her baby brother Nathan is in danger, and she flies to Manhattan in an effort to rescue him. Madeline Pryor has become the Goblin Queen, and has created Hell on Earth in the franchise-wide event Inferno. Initially mistaking Madeline for her mother, Rachel is blasted out of the sky and falls prey to demons. She's trapped in the form of a mannequin, but eventually freed thanks to Nightcrawler. Nathan is rescued by the new team X-Factor, and Rachel is shocked to discover Jean Grey alive and well among their number. Rachel hides from them, spying discreetly as Jean cares for baby Nathan, who she's decided to claim as her own, because Madeline, it turns out, was a clone of Jean created by the villain Mr. Sinister. Returning to Britain, Rachel joins the rest of Excalibur on the cross-time caper, an adventure through seemingly infinite alternate realities. It's Rachel's power that causes the team to hop between Earths, via the Phoenix supercharging the mysterious portal-opening robot called Widget. No matter how many alternate versions of Excalibur the team encounters, they never meet an alternate Rachel, an experience Rachel finds disquieting. When finally summoned by Saturnine, the group disguises Rachel as Kitty, and Saturnine, though she clearly sees through the facade, allows them to return home. Rachel then has to face Galactus, the devourer of worlds, and offers up her own energies if he will spare the Earth. He tries it, but finds he's unable to devour the Phoenix, and departs. In a pair of 1990 annuals by Louise Simonson, Rachel is shocked by the appearance in the present of a time-displaced Franklin Richards, who had used his powers to escape through time and space at the moment of his death in Days of Future Past. He's pursued by Ahab, the Houndmaster, the man who once brainwashed and enslaved Rachel. Ahab returns to the future after he's defeated by a coalition of the various X-teams and the Fantastic Four, but he now knows Rachel is alive, and where he might find her. Franklin accepts that he must return to his proper place in time and die to prevent harm from coming to his younger self, and bids Rachel farewell. Shaken by all these experiences, Rachel admits to Scott and Jean that she's their daughter from the future. She's hoping to be comforted, but Jean harshly rejects her. She refuses to have her life preordained, and refuses to acknowledge Rachel as her child. Not long afterward, in X-Factor 68, Scott and Jean are forced to send baby Nathan 2,000 years into the future with a woman called Ascani, after he's infected with the fatal techno-organic virus by the immortal mutant villain Apocalypse. This will be important later. Back in Excalibur, now drawn and written by Alan Davis, Rachel accompanies Megan on a backpacking trip across Europe to help her find information on her mysterious past. In the process, Rachel comes to understand that her scrambled memories are a side effect of her tapping into the Phoenix Force. She then defeats Necrom, host of the Anti-Phoenix, which, okay, honestly, don't worry about it. Left catatonic after her battle with the Anti-Phoenix, Rachel is aided telepathically by Professor Xavier and Jean Grey. They're able to communicate directly with the Phoenix, and it explains what happened to Rachel before she arrived on Earth-616. At the end of Days of Future Past, the returned Kate Pride Rasputin discovered her future hadn't changed. The timeline she'd altered had been a different one, not her own past, the past of Earth-811. Rachel projects her own astral self into the past to figure out how she'd made such a mistake, and in the process made contact with the Phoenix Force, which mistook her initially for her mother. Impressed by how much suffering Rachel had endured while remaining a resilient and heroic person, 
The Phoenix followed her back to the future and plotted with Kate Pride Rasputin to give Rachel a better life in the past. After a suicide mission to destroy the Super Sentinel Nimrod, Kate triggers the Phoenix to take Rachel back in time physically, merging with her but in the process leaving her mostly amnesiac. The Phoenix ultimately decides that it's unable to make good moral choices and decides to cease actively thinking. It cedes all control over the power to Rachel, whom it sees as an ideal host of good character. Rachel returns to Excalibur, but she explains that with her memories now restored, she must return to her future and stop Ahab. The team travels through time to help Rachel liberate the days of future past. There, Rachel learns that Widget, the strange robot who has helped Excalibur all along, actually contains the consciousness of Kate Pride Rasputin, who had been merged with machinery when Ahab tortured her for information on Rachel's whereabouts. Rachel and Widget manage to reprogram all the Sentinels, ending the genocide and creating a new start for their home timeline. Content that she's done her part, Rachel decides to return to the past of Earth-616 with her friends. This is the last story by Excalibur creator Alan Davis. When the team arrives home under new writer Scott Lobdell, they discover Captain Britain has been lost in the time stream on the way back. They're devastated but can't see any way to recover him. Rachel's cheered up at least when Jean Grey approaches her, feeling badly about her past rejection of Rachel. Rachel's the first person Jean tells that she's planning to propose marriage to Scott, and she suggests that Rachel, or a version of her, might be born soon. Rachel is overjoyed and happily attends her parents' wedding. Immediately afterward, in Excalibur 75, Rachel learns the only way to rescue Captain Britain from the time stream is to trade places with him. After a tearful goodbye with Kitty, Rachel makes the swap with the help of the sorceress Amanda Sefton. She next appears as the elderly Mother Ascani in the Cable solo series by Fabian Niciesa. The reader discovers that Rachel wound up 2,000 years in the future, where she became a spiritual leader and founded the Clan Ascani, a society of outsiders that rebels against the totalitarian rule of the immortal apocalypse. The Ascani wait for a messiah called the Ascani Son, Nathan Christopher Summers. It was Rachel who sent the woman called Ascani back in time to rescue baby Nathan. But when he arrives, Rachel fears she will not actually be able to save him from the virus. Desperate to save her brother, as she once promised, she makes a clone of him. Nathan does pull through, but the clone is kidnapped by Apocalypse, who grievously wounds the elderly Rachel in battle. Apocalypse names the cloned boy Strife and raises him as his heir. In the 1994 miniseries The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix by Scott Lobdell, Rachel telepathically pulls Scott and Jean's consciousnesses forward in time, giving them the opportunity to raise Nathan under the alias's slim and red dayspring. She helps Nathan master his own telekinetic powers to halt the spread of the techno-organic virus within him. After Scott and Jean spend 12 years in the future as Nathan's parents, Rachel's strength finally begins fading. She asks Jean to take the codename Phoenix again and help redeem it into something heroic and beautiful. Jean agrees, and Rachel sends them back to the past as she dies. Nathan grows up to become the hero Cable, known to readers already as a time-traveling ally of the X-Men in the present. A 1999 miniseries by John Francis Moore called X-Men Phoenix depicts Rachel's early years in the Ascani timeline. Don't worry about it. After the 2000 franchise-wide event The Twelve, do not worry about it, erases the possibility of the Ascani timeline happening in the future, Rachel is suddenly thrust back into the time stream at the age she was when she entered it back in Excalibur 75, with only vague memories of her life as Mother Iscani. There are a bunch of stories you don't need to worry about, and eventually Cable manages to save Rachel and bring her back to the past. Deciding to keep a low profile for now, Rachel begins attending college. She next appears in Chris Claremont's Extreme X-Men, where a mysterious telepath covered in shadows is the brainwashed slave of the evil mutant Elias Bogan. Kitty Pride manages to help the X-Men free the telepath from Bogan's influence, and is overjoyed to discover that the telepath is Rachel, alive and well. 
Rachel moves in with Kitty to recover from this latest ordeal, but is quickly devastated to learn that Jean Grey has been killed in the penultimate arc of Grant Morrison's new X-Men. Claremont brought the character with him for his long-awaited return to Uncanny X-Men. Angry at her father for moving on romantically with Emma Frost, Rachel changes her last name from Summers to Grey and takes on her mother's old codename of Marvel Girl. She finds herself tapping into the Phoenix Force again after Jean's death and tangles once more with her old foe, Celine. As an olive branch, Emma introduces Rachel to her grandparents, John and Elaine Gray. Rachel begins bonding with her relatives, who organize a big family reunion so she can get to know the whole extended family. Enter the Shi'ar Death Commandos. Thus begins the storyline End of Greys, in which the Death Commandos eliminate the entire Grey bloodline in an effort to stamp out the Phoenix. They fail to kill Rachel, but brand her with a high-tech tattoo on her back that makes them able to track her anywhere in the galaxy. Rachel then becomes part of a hand-picked team of X-Men dispatched to Shi'ar space under new writer Ed Brubaker. She meets a Shi'ar warrior named Corvus who wields the Blade of the Phoenix. Do not worry about it. And they become romantically attracted mostly because his sword has a piece of the Phoenix in it. Rachel's contact with the Blade turns her fiery power signature blue and she develops a bloodthirstier personality, showing no hesitation about killing her enemies. The Shi'ar Civil War happens, don't worry about it, this space stuff, we are still just not bothering with this space stuff, and Rachel eventually joins the space pirates called the Starjammers alongside her uncle Havoc and his girlfriend Polaris when her grandfather Corsair is murdered. He gets better. Rachel acts as Empress Lelandra's bodyguard and slays Black Cloak, leader of the Death Commandos who murdered the Greys, but she isn't satisfied by her revenge. After the death of Lilandra, she returns to Earth just in time for the 2011 event Schism. Rachel sides with Wolverine over her father Cyclops, but she does help Scott during the Avengers vs. X-Men event, in which she misleads the Avengers to protect him. She otherwise doesn't play a significant role in the event, despite the event being about the Phoenix. Which, sure, whatever. Rachel serves briefly on an all-female X-Men team led by Storm, and then comes all the Inhumans vs. X-Men stuff, which, yet again, we are gonna skip. In X-Men Gold by Mark Guggenheim, Rachel joins a new team of X-Men led by Kitty and adopts a new codename at Kitty's suggestion, calling herself Prestige. She spends most of this period as a pretty passive character, controlled first by Mesmero and then by Cassandra Nova in X-Men Red. For about a minute, she dates Nightcrawler. It's awful. In the 2018 event Extermination by Ed Brisson, she's captured by her old tormentor Ahab alongside other X-Men and once more turned into a hound. Though Rachel breaks free of his conditioning, she decides to take a leave of absence from the X-Men. During this event, Cable is killed and replaced by a teenage version of himself. Don't worry about it. Later, Rachel is kidnapped by a teenage version of Strife, who she tries to kill before she's convinced to spare him by Teen Cable. In the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by Jonathan Hickman, Rachel is one of countless mutants to become a citizen of the new sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. She's tapped by Northstar and Polaris to be part of the new iteration of X-Factor Investigations, tracking down missing persons and examining hiccups in the Krakoan Resurrection Protocol. She grows closer with her old friend Betsy Braddock, the new Captain Britain, who gifts her with a werewolf puppy, the last werewolf in existence, that Rachel names Amazing Baby. Trying her best to be there for her friends, and her younger brother Cable, still a teenager after the events of extermination, Rachel Summers begins building a life for herself in the present, with no more worrying about dark and dystopian futures. At least, at the moment. X-Men! X-Men! Sarah, how are you doing, now that we're back? I'm doing good! From that multiple timeline, multiple reality mess. Oh yeah! <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it! <laughs> 
it does always seem like there's a little bit more to Rachel yeah. than what even I know. That's part of why I was nervous about doing this character because I feel like every time I look into Rachel's publication history, I find some new thing I'd completely either forgotten about or never known. Sure. Because she is so random a lot of the time. It's like, oh, there's Rachel. She pops up to do this. Like, remember after Mother Ascani died and Rachel appears as like an astral ghost to Cable a couple times in the Cable solo? Like, how does that fit into the, mm-hmm. oh, it doesn't, don't worry about it. Like, you know, it's just very, like, it doesn't. that was when nobody thought they were bringing the character back. So, yeah, lots there. Yeah. As I said earlier, I don't love most of what comes after Davis leaves Excalibur. Labdell writes her out of Excalibur pretty quickly in 75. As you point out, there's a very weird moment with Rory Campbell, who... So mad. Yeah, was introduced as the past version of Ahab and spends most of his time in 90s Excalibur attempting to prevent himself from becoming Ahab, but it seems almost inevitable no matter what he tries. He's gonna do it. He's a jerk. He's totally somebody who is gonna do it anyway eventually. He sucks. (laughs) Yeah. I'm always just like, I get it. I get what you're trying to do here, but like, he sucks. We met him as somebody who takes control of a teen girl's mind. And puts her in a bondage outfit and a leash. Like, yeah. Hmm. Mm. No, I don't think we can redeem him. Yeah. I don't think so. I don't think that any kind of sympathetic backstory can make me see the softer side of Ahab. I just don't. Nope. No, no, no. I don't like it. And him. that's why very quickly, Alan Davis junks that character the minute he can. He's like, get him out of here. <laughs> well, when he comes back in the the era of Alan Davis that I think Alan himself would admit is not very good because he was an emergency replacement. Mm-hmm. He asked Chris to help him plot certain things. He was scripting things that were suggested to him, essentially. It's that whole period with the 12. It all looks good, but uh, mm-hmm. does not read well. But one of the things he randomly does there is turn Rory Campbell into famine. <laughs> yeah. In one of like Apocalypse's new iterations of the Horsemen. And he's never been seen again. Like It was just very much like... Fuck that. I'm cool with that character yeah. just being gone. Goodbye. I didn't like it. I really was upset, honestly. Like, that issue 75 thing really bums me out. Yeah. Just on a profound level. It's not okay. Then later, whenever Kate, and she's just like, whenever you see me in the future, yes. kiss me on my face or whatever. I'll be a baby or whatever. And I'm just like, it is so weird between you two, but you are so in game for each other. Like That's the thing that's so weird about 75 is you have that weird moment with Rory and Rachel, but then you also have one of the gayest on page moments between Kitty and Rachel ever, which is that they're in love. Yeah. yeah where 100%. She, she says, and this is again, like this is love Dell not doing the reading, right? Because this isn't Rachel's timeline, so Rachel can't be born in this timeline, which mm-hmm. is a, an error that Lubdell makes a couple different times in these stories around this time. But she basically says to Kitty, when I'm born to Scott and Jean, promise that you'll hold me in your arms and kiss me hello. Which is like, like, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. All right. I guess I'll kiss baby you. And they're sobbing and like looking at each other into each other's eyes. And it's like very. (laughs) They're like, kiss me then because we cannot kiss on panel right now. Right. Um, Yeah. Probably we should. But I guess I got to go. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It's weird. It's hella weird, honestly. But 
I don't know. I still read it as like a gay little 13 year old. <laughs> it was just like, I love them. Yeah. I mean, I did too. And I was just like, this is like, they are gay. They love each other so much. And you get that sense like through the entire thing, even whenever Kate, they're trying to love triangle it, but the lesbian shuts it down, right? Right. Like, the lesbian's like, uh, I'm not really into Alistair. Yeah, I'm not into Alistair Stewart, actually. Never. No, thanks, is what Rachel no says. No interest right. at all. Which is why the Rory thing feels so off. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah. On top of the Ahab of it all, which obviously is bad. I think part of it is that Ahab is one of the only parts of Rachel's backstory that Claremont did not create. Mm, mm-hmm. Ahab comes in in the Days of Future Present storyline, which the Simonsons right, wrote yeah. across a couple different annuals. Before that, the figure of the Houndmaster is just kind of this shadowy thing that we don't really see hmm. in Claremont's stuff. Sometimes we see him and he looks very different from Ahab, actually. We see like parts of him or whatever. Mm-hmm. Walt Simonson introduces Ahab in that Fantastic Four annual where Franklin from the future comes back in time. Oh, my God. And then Wheezy finishes the story in the New Mutants annual and the X-Factor annual. Mm -hmm. So I think he's always just kind of been an awkward fit. And it seemed like they decided, let's tie this all together in Excalibur but it just never really doesn't work doesn't work notably doesn't work notably doesn't work (laughs) and again like yeah I don't really I don't know it's just bad Lobdell is the one who sends her into the future and turns her into Mother Ascani I do like Mm -hmm. that storyline oh yeah that rules like what's I mean that rules that's the best that's so cool Rachel becoming a cool powerful old woman who is essentially like Sappho leading her lesbian commune Mm -hmm. is great Everything I want for her like I you look at Rachel and you're just like that's like where her story is going like yeah absolutely go far into the future what would things be like and i'm like the most believable one is rachel i think because like she she definitely is going to go into the far-flung future and try to help people out and totally become like low-key a cult figure well and she allows what's it's interesting with her psychology like she allows the ascani to deify people she knew Like, they Mm -hmm. talk about Storm as the bright lady as though she was a goddess. And they talk about Xavier as the Xavier, like the Christ. Mm -hmm. Like, he was, uh, you know. And Nathan, her brother, who she loves, she builds up a messianic tradition around him. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting. There's something a little morally dubious about it, which I like. But it also, Mm -hmm. you never get the sense that she doesn't believe it's true. Yeah, she she you get the feeling that that's how she views these people. Right. And, and that like I the mean, that's aug- fair. and the auguries or whatever do indicate like the prophecy of the 12 so far as she knows is real. Mhm. So the idea that her brother Nathan is the Messiah, the Ascani son, she seems to believe it. Mhm. Especially after she meets Tanya Trask and all of that, who's like been traveling through time doing 12 shenanigans, which is a whole other that's a character who's a real fucking mess <laughs> madam sanctity sure yeah 
Well, we have to always remember with Rachel that she knows more about everything, like uh, how things go, I think, than anybody, right? Yeah. And so there's certainly a lot of holes in her knowledge where she doesn't know everything, but she does know a lot. And she has kind of a general sense of how the future is tending. Well, she clearly believes that only Nathan can stop Apocalypse in that future. Yeah. To the point where... And this is really interesting as like a Madeline fan. She decides when it looks like baby Nathan is going to die of the techno-organic virus that she won't be able to save him. She clones him. Because mm-hmm. she's like, well, a Nathan can do it. Worst case. <laughs> and that's where strife comes from. And the thing that's wild is like, I do hope it comes up in these last few issues of the Teen Cable solo because they're dealing with strife now and it's like Rachel created strife she doesn't remember doing it because she only kind of remembers being Mother Ascani because that timeline was erased but that's wild that is wild after all of the Scott and Gina Madeline stuff the idea that you would be like well our only solution is to clone him I know is kind of hilarious but I hope it leads to her viewing Strife with a little bit of kindness because I think that Strife deserves kindness. That's (laughs) the thing about Strife. Kindness. What I would really love to see is how Madeline would regard Strife because I think that would be interesting. Oh my God. Is that her son? Because I think she would say yes. Yeah. Just as much as I'm a real person, this is a real person. So, oh my God. That would be very complicated. And, like, I mean, listen, there is a fan theory. My friend Tycon, I feel like, made this up, and I don't know if other people came up with it first. Tycon is great. Alia Steger on Twitter. They were just like, so why did Cable's hand bleed in Ten of Swords? And why? And like came up with sort of all this evidence that Teen Cable might actually be Strife, which blew my fucking mind. And ever since, (laughs) I have been like Strife-pilled, and I'm reading every issue of Cable like with that in mind. I don't know if it'll turn out to be true. But it would be a good way to keep both Cables, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. And it would be interesting. I mean, that's super fun. Yeah, I mean, if it's like, oh, this kid that... Scott and Jean have taken into their home and that Rachel is treating like she's his big sister, like and all that. What if it really is Strife who has escaped from Apocalypse and just wants to be the real Nathan, which is all Strife ever wanted? I know. I mean, Strife believed he was the real Nathan, right? So mm-hmm. that's complicated. And then Rachel maybe secretly knew, but who knows? Yeah, um, it's all complicado. So I think that that would be fun to explore, even if Teen Cable is just Cable. I would love to see how Rachel regards Strife because she is responsible for, you know, if Mr. Sinister is Madeline's father, then Rachel is kind of Strife's mother in a, you know, if you look at it that way. But she's also his sister because it's like mm-hmm. intra-summer's weirdness. So it's like a whole... Oh, and that's older sister syndrome, right? right. As an older yeah. sister, I can say that you, in some ways, I have two younger brothers. And as a kid, I was definitely mom slash sister for sure. So it's just a physical embodiment of that. Yeah. And Rachel does have vague memories of being Mother Iscani. So I think she knows she did that. <laughs> Even if like she doesn't remember why or like, you know? I hope so. I think that that would be so much more interesting, right? I love anything that gives Rachel autonomy over the weirdest parts of her story. I agree. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I really would love for her to, once she's officially a lesbian on page, address mm-hmm. some of the weird relationships she's had with men and like explain them the way that they've allowed Bobby to do. 
You know what I mean? Oh, sure. Like, I would love to just explicitly say the only reason I was into Corvus is because his sword was my mom. <laughs> like... <laughs> Oh, my God. It was so funny because, yeah, isn't that the thing? She's like, oh, I'm sorry. It was actually just the phoenix that bonded us together. I was just and I into was like, your weapon. Oh. It reminded me of my mom. That's literally Oh, my it. God. I know. Wow, Rachel. Mm, <laughs> I see you, you know, like, and sadly, you see me. Compulsory heterosexuality is a real bitch. Ugh. Oh, I can love him. He carries my mom around in a sword. Like, totally. Rachel, just be gay. It's fine. Whenever I read that story, I'm like, Kitty, this is what you did to this girl. That's <laughs> like... exactly what it is. <laughs> I think Rachel is fully a lesbian and is secure in her identity and all of that by the end of Extreme X-Men. Like, whenever she's come back, she, oh, yeah. she goes to college, right? That's code, always. Oh, my God. Then she and Kitty are together. Then Kitty breaks up with her and gets back with Pio. And Rachel suddenly is like, I can date boys too. Yeah, look at me. I'm all about boys. It's just like you are. Right. And it's like, this is absurd, Rachel. It's absurd, (laughs) Rachel. Please stop. I know. I feel like I had almost, and it's like, it's for me, it's like obviously there's so many people who have different journeys and stories and stuff like that. But definitely, whenever I was in my early 20s, I was like, well, I don't hate men, so probably I'm bisexual. And then it was like, yeah, but you don't seem to really like men that much. Yeah, <laughs> so like, like you're not really like, attracted you don't like to them. Dating them. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like you're, you like them because you like to hang out with them. Right. Like it's not really the thing that you're trying to make it be. Um, or that you're responding to the fact that they like you. And yes. I see that a lot in Rachel where it's just like Corvus is so into her and she's like, I guess. Well, and in X-Men Gold, literally the reason that she gets with Kurt is because she accidentally reads his mind and sees that he's into her. Yeah. And she's like, and she's yeah, touched by right. it. Like that's it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that there's something to be said for that because I'm like, once again, I am Rachel. Like <laughs> that is exactly what my early twenties were. I know a lot of lesbians with that story, which is why like I called her a lesbian icon when I was soliciting questions and someone was like, Personally, just my opinion, but I think she's bisexual. She's been with men. And I was just like, Do you know any lesbians? Like the idea that gay characters have to be gold star gays really annoys the hell out of me. Speaking as like very much a gold star gay myself, I think the concept is harmful. And I think that it's not true to the reality of yeah. particularly a lot of lesbian experiences because of the pressure placed on women to please men. Yeah. And the fact that like it's just bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> like, like it really just, sucks. It's nonsense to begin with. But the idea that a character is bisexual if they ever had sex with someone. Oh, my God. Of the opposite sex. is just fucking stupid. Also, especially like that's the thing. There's characters where when you read them dating men, that's when it becomes really that obvious. They're gay. That they are right. queer. Yeah. yeah. There's never been a gayer moment for Rachel than her dating a man ever because it feels so wrong. It's so forced and weird and like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I've always, I have respect for ships of all of the kinds, but every time I see like the Nightcrawler Rachel era, like Rachel was like a really weak character during that and it sucked. Incredibly weak. That's the other thing about Prestige, like Mm -mm. is that Rachel sucks that whole era. What was the deal? And like literally, I think I even mentioned it last time whenever in Phoenix Resurrection where Nightcrawler's like, oh, Rachel, you've got a headache. Why don't you go lay down in the Blackbird? 
and then she just does and she's just out of the whole story i was like this is the worst version of rachel this sucks the story about the phoenix i know this sucks i was like really upset about that part like i was you know i'm all over the place whenever it comes to that story but i would say that like yeah that part was just like all right all right, I guess. As we discussed last time, I'm just down on Phoenix Resurrection. It's just not. Sure. And I feel like yeah. a lot of it, like, I don't even necessarily blame Rosenberg for the stuff I don't like. Because uh-huh. I think a lot of it was probably editorial, right? For sure. But yeah. I just, I don't, I don't like it. Bums me out in a lot of ways. Um, But the Rachel. The Rachel of it is all is. the strongest. Yeah, that's just strikingly bad. Yeah. And like, what's the appeal between them? I was always really uh, baffled by it, I guess. Meanwhile, whenever you see the Kate and Rachel give each other sex eyes in Marauders number 12, and you're just like, they're not doing anything. They're just looking at each other. And this is like one of the sexiest panels I've ever seen. It's a page that says something very specific, which is like, these are two people who have performed oral sex on each other. Oh, for sure. Yeah. That's what's communicated right there i'm sure they've done lots of other things but it's just like rachel says kate there in the voice of a person who has it's like i have gone down on you yeah that's what that panel is like it just is yep i cannot disagree (laughs) um i think that that is true i think that that is a very specific look and i do believe that you have just described what happens in that comic yeah so (laughs) the uh yeah essentially that's that's the gist in terms of post Ascani Rachel, I get a shiver, a bad like anti ASMR shiver whenever I see the phrase Rachel Gray. <laughs> like it truly unsoothes me. It just feels wrong. And it's not because I don't understand the character beat Claremont was doing. Like I feel like he regressed her in certain ways because as you identified in the earlier part of the episode, Rachel is forgiving. That is a character trait of hers. And I found her aggressive anger about Scott and Emma to be over the top and childish in a way that I didn't necessarily think she would be. However, if you go back to the way she reacted to Scott and Madeline in the 80s, it's not 100% out of step with her character. So I get the, I'm going to call myself Rachel Gray because I'm disowning my dad thing. I get it. I feel like it's a little over the top, but I get it. I think it sucks, but also I love, like, what's more queer than Rachel being like, I'm mad at men. Like, I'm going by Rachel Gray. I like that part of it. I'm glad we've gone away from it, but I do get what he was trying to do. Yeah, exactly. Particularly with the end of Gray's storyline, which I do think is good. Yeah. Back tattoo aside, because what the hell is that about, Chris? <laughs> Ooh, That's a weird geez, moment. Get rid of that. That was not good. And mm-mm. we have, I think, gotten rid of it now, right? Like, I, I, I don't think we've seen no it. She does not. She's been resurrected, right? On Krakoa. Yeah, she was just resurrected in X Factor. So mm-hmm. she does not have that anymore. I don't. Yeah. Think. Headcanon, no back no. tattoos on Rachel. If she gets one, it's going to have to be a lot cooler than that one. Because I mean, I like that she's kept the facial tattoo as a power signature. Totally. Love that. I do understand that this is something I didn't get as a kid, but I do understand the people who are like, why does she have Maori face tattoos? And I was always like, sure. well, it's not explicitly that. And then literally for this episode, I actually reread that issue with her and Magma fighting Celine, And it's referred to as like her Maori mask in the mm. issue. So Claremont did do it on purpose. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing about Claremont. Claremont is really into tattoos. He finds them to be an interesting way to characterize people. Look at what he does to Sage. 
he likes a visible tattoo that people feel conflicted about. I think that's actually part of his fascination with Bishop, who he didn't create, is the brand on his face. And I think it ties into Claremont's preoccupation with the Holocaust, right? Mm-hmm. Like there is this obsession with the idea of oppressors tattooing the minority in a way that they can't hide. So I think that Rachel, having experienced the mutant Holocaust, having this mark on her that she has to hide because she's ashamed of it, but then it becomes kind of a source of power for her. I think that's what he was doing there. Sure. The specific fact that it looks like a Maori facial tattoo is not ideal. Uh huh. The way it manifests now, though, it's not really that anymore. It's just sort of like spikes at the edges of her face, which I think yeah. is fine. Like they've, It's not literally those traditional tattoos. Right. So yeah, I mean, we can move away from that. Yeah, we can move away from that part of it. And the back tattoo to me was just... Excessive. Yeah, I think part of it is ugly. how Bachelo drew <laughs> it. Bad. Is like the sequence of her getting it feels sexualized to me in a way I don't like. She's yeah, already in the little mini it dress sucks. outfit that I don't love. Not that I have a problem with Rachel wearing a mini skirt because she did that in Excalibur a lot. Yeah, with her frayed leather That's jacket the thing. and her rat tail. <laughs> and her mullet. Yeah, it's the combo of Jean Greyifying her. She looks like Jean Grey. Yeah. She has this new blowout, very feminine haircut. She's going by Marvel Girl. She's wearing a sexier version of, like, that is the other thing. There's a scene where she talks to, like, the hollow empathic projection of Jean's personality or whatever, right, again. And Jean's like, that's a costume I never got to wear as Marvel Girl. I'm so happy that you're wearing it. And it's like, this is not a costume Jean would ever have worn. <laughs> yeah. Belly shirt. I don't buy that explanation all. at all. Jean is not a belly shirt girl. Jean loves a backless moment. Uh-huh. She sure does. But she is not a belly shirt girl. She's not a crop top gal. All right. Not to like completely seg into weird stuff, but like I will say that my favorite era of Jean is that X Factor whenever she's constantly just wearing athletic wear because I like the person who just shows up in athletic wear and is like, I'm not. I mean, I'm just like here in my Lululemon at the meeting. Yeah, I don't have to like wear makeup right now. Well, that was also Rachel, right? Like in the 80s, before she gets a costume, she just shows up in like dance and leotards to things. (laughs) Yeah, which I love. (laughs) It's very 80s. My favorite Jean fashion moments. Part of why I love the Dauterman design for the gala for Jean is that backless element that looks like those dresses she used to wear in the 70s. I liked when she would have Mm -hmm. like a kicky scarf like mm-hmm. over a cleavagey top. Love it, love it. Those love are my favorite yeah, jeans. Classic looks. style. I would like yeah. her to go back to like a 70s aesthetic in her casual wear. I think that that would be love cute. It. Her and Misty Knight out on the town and like jeans in like a low cut top that looks really beautiful. It looks like silk or something. And then she has a gold scarf and you're like, yes, girl. Like, yeah, let Jean have more female friendships. Well, that too, like- right? Yeah, <laughs> let Jean talk to women. I'm really hopeful about this new X-Men team. I hope I am hopeful as well. Hopefully she and Dazzler and Tempo will have a great time on the X-Men team together. I'm just mm, Tempo just manifesting. Tempo's not going to happen, but I I know I tried. God. I tried. It I made so I made threads on Twitter. She was really good though. I do miss that character. Well, here's the upside to that X-Men vote above all. 
I think now Tempo is actually going to get a push somewhere. Because mm-hmm. suddenly we all were talking about her and all of these different writers like Jerry Duggan, Leah Williams, Teeny Howard, Fabian Nicieza popped up and was like, I love that character. I had all kinds of plans mm-hmm. for her before I got fired. Like, you know, like yeah, everybody yeah, was yeah. like, that character's great. So now I think she will turn up, which would be great. Yeah. I love her. She's a lesbian. Maybe. Let's dig into it. That would be fun. Let's have it. There are no fucking lesbians. Like, Karma is the only person out there. I know. I mean, and like Bling, but she doesn't get to do anything. Ever. Yeah. Oh, my God. I would like to see Bling maybe on X Corp. I think that would be like a good book for her because she's like. Oh, yeah. Like, because her parents are musicians, like famous musicians. Yeah. There should be a Krakoan record label that, like, Dazzler is putting out new albums on, right? Like, Dazzler and Lila and Siren's band. And, like, maybe Bling is the record executive now. Just a thought. I Again, I feel the need to say, because people know I represent Teeny, I know nothing about the roster of X-Corp. I am just spitballing. (laughs) We still don't really even know what X-Corp's going to be, particularly. Like, in terms of all the businesses it's going to have. So, Mm -hmm. anyway... We digress. (laughs) The Rachel Gray stuff for me, I think the end of Gray's storyline is really good. Tattoo aside. I mean, first of all, I like the way it takes out Elaine and John Gray, who I think are fucking awful. (laughs) Get out of (laughs) here. Like, Get them out of here. But I also love, because if you go back to the 80s, like there's a moment when Rachel first becomes the Phoenix, it's because she breaks into their house, like casually when Mm -hmm. they're out and touches the Shi'ar hollow empathic crystal that preserves Jean's personality so that she can feel close to her mom Mm -hmm. she sees them driving away and she's just like i don't feel comfortable approaching them because i don't want to drag them into all of my stuff or traumatize them again or whatever but in my life they were the people i loved more than anyone besides my parents and the x-men must have been way nicer right well literally the implication in that issue i was just rereading this the other day is she blames actually John for Jean becoming Dark Phoenix Mm. because she says in my timeline when she threatened you at your home you understood that she could feel your fear and that she was reacting to it and you comforted her and talked her down why couldn't you do that this time oh which is a really good beat right like yeah, I did, I totally missed that. But yeah, okay. Yeah, no, apparently on Earth 811, it occurred to John. <laughs> Not to be awful. <laughs> she's a telepath and she can feel us freaking out. And I need to de-escalate this situation. Whereas on Earth 616, he was like, you're he not my like, daughter. Get out of my house. Right. And then she ate a star yeah. or whatever. I guess she'd already mm-hmm. done that. But you get what I'm saying. Like, it was not, you know, that gets fucked up, of course, in Excalibur 52, where it says that Jean never became Phoenix in Rachel's timeline, which is just not correct. Yeah. As we've said on this podcast before, sometimes it's just an error and you have to ignore it. Go with the one you like. Honestly, that's what I do. This is the problem for people who, I mean, I was just talking to someone who was like arguing with me about Emma's age and how like, because there's all this on-page evidence suggesting that Emma's younger than the 05. And I was just like, I don't accept that because those stories are bad and that doesn't make sense. And I want her to be like 38, honestly. And she should be 40, right? So I'm like, I just choose to ignore that because there is no world in which every ex comic actually does fit into a continuity that makes sense you have to grant that certain things are just wrong Mm -hmm. it's like that's a mistake or 
I just choose to ignore that because it doesn't serve the story. You can't let yeah. the story serve the continuity, right? Oh, right. And don't let it ruin it for you. Like, that's the biggest yeah. thing too, right? It doesn't matter that much. Just don't worry about just it. Just don't worry like, about I, it. That has become a catchphrase on this podcast for a reason because sometimes you have to just not worry about something. Yeah, they're going to ignore certain things. It's okay. The point is, yeah. So John and Elaine suck. Get them out. I fucking hate them. Just like, you know, speaking as a Madeline head, like there is nothing more off-putting to me than right after Madeline's funeral when Elaine and John are like, well, the baby's basically actually ours, right? Your late wife was Jean's clone. So she's it's basically mm. Jean's baby. And then they're just like, we're your grandparents. Hello. And it's mm-hmm. we're supposed to find it like sweet, I guess. But I just, as someone who cares about, I mean, it's, it, this is the eternal like Wheezy X Factor problem if, as a Madeline fan is like, Madeline only exists in Wheezy X Factor in the service of uplifting Scott and Jean and absolving them mm-hmm. of everything. If you're Wheezy and you're writing those characters, I understand it. Like, I do get that. But Jean then, like, doubles down on it. When Rachel first sees Jean alive and is observing X Factor's ship and watching Jean take care of baby Nathan, Jean is saying, like, and this is actually an interesting bit. She says, your mother was another Jean Grey. Mm-hmm. A clone of me, closer to me than any twin could be. Another Jean Grey. So I suppose you are my child. And while biologically that's true, it goes back to all of the stuff about Jean at the end of Inferno that made me find Jean intolerable, which was the way that she, like, she hates Madeline. And then the second she finds out Madeline is a clone of herself, she suddenly has all this compassion for Madeline. (laughs) And she was just trying her hardest. (laughs) And then the moment Madeline's dead, she's like, she was a piece of me that was stolen. And this, it all becomes about Jean. And I'm just like, ugh. So John and Elaine show you exactly where she got that from because they feel that way immediately about Nathan. They feel possessive. And so I like in End of Grey's how... We find that Rachel, basically, Jean's dead again, right? So Rachel and her grandparents have actually gotten close. And it makes sense because they always, when Jean's dead, are like, okay, what can we do, right? And Sarah's dead by this point also. So Mm -hmm. Rachel is comforting to them as their granddaughter. And they're happy to accept her into their lives. Except then the Shi'ar death commandos slaughter the entire family at the family reunion that is put together specifically so Rachel can meet all her relatives. Yeah. Everyone is murdered right in front of her. And as she's dying, Elaine is like, you are not my family. Like, fuck you to Rachel. (laughs) It's always the last minute that they get you. I swear. Yeah, they are the worst. They 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 are are so awful. Aren't they kind of like waspy here? Yeah. They're like, oh, God, I don't like them. They're just dreadful. It's a very, like, someone once referred to Molly Weasley as, like, the nightmare Anglican mother. And I've always found that character off-putting as well. And Elaine Gray is, like, very that energy to me. Like, just, like, very waspy, unpleasant. Like, the two of them. He's a professor at Bard. He thinks he's so smart. And she is just fucking dreadful. And they're both awful. Like, they're just awful people. Yeah. And you start to be like, I get it, Gene. Right. I, like, I get it. You didn't even have a chance. Like, with you know. Like, you were truly just, like, fed to the wolves pretty much your whole Jean's life. Gene's parental figures were these two, Charles Xavier <laughs> and Moira McTaggart. Like, that's, you yeah. don't have a chance. That's a mess yeah. is what that is. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Because the idea of like, well, it's okay. Then she had Charles and Moira. And you're like, wait, no, that's worse. That's worse. Like, not that, you know, like they, their morals are all out of whack. But yeah, so I, I do love that storyline because that's just, it's so gay, right? Like that mm-hmm. moment of like, they were nice to you, but now that the chips are down. Then they found out a Now thing, that the chips are down, and... they are repulsed and you are not their child. Like yeah. it's a very... It's dark. It's dark. I swear. Yeah. It's definitely something where once again, I'm just like, yeah, that's super relatable. Whenever you like (laughs) have like terrible, like whenever you have relatives that are just intrinsically homophobic and then like they kind of get over it. But, but they, they didn't really. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. It's like you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop yeah. on it. You know, mm-hmm. like for sure. I get it. That's cool, Rachel. Yeah. I see you again. So I actually quite like that story. And I understand particularly the Rachel Gray name, given that she's the last Gray. Like that's sure. the whole idea. Right. Yeah. What I don't like is everything that comes after it. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. What a mess for such a long time. It's like 10 years. I know it's not actually, but it feels like about 10 years. Yeah. Isn't it, though? It's it like might the be. End of... I'm thinking about it. It's like at least mm. five. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's rough. It's rough. Then she goes to space. That's what I mean is the space stuff. I'm like, that feels like it's like 10 years, but it, it is like five That's years. Nightmare. It's long. It's a long time because they don't oh, get God. back until they don't get back until like schism. Oh, my God. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. And once it hits that point, I'm just like, I don't even know what Rachel's doing right now. <laughs> like, well, Rachel really goes with no Wolverine, idea. which doesn't make sense to me. No. I mean, she then helps Scott secretly. So there's like, she's sort of playing both sides the way that Betsy does and that Rogue does. But the whole thing is very, I guess she goes with Kitty. Like that makes sense. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But yeah, odd. And then Kitty starts dating Bobby, which that's really funny to think about. (laughs) Yeah. uh Uh-huh. I always think it's so weird. Rachel's like, I'm right here and you're dating the gay guy? What's happening? What is happening to us? What's going on? Like, you are pulling out all of the stops All of the stops just not to be with me. Yeah. Is sort of the subtext. Totally. I know. And then I'm just like, that's it. Like, Rachel loses her way. Like, she's kind of just like, I swear to God, like, every time you see her. Yeah, she gets super frustrated by Kitty, like, multiple times during that era. And it's just like, yeah, it's because she really wants to, um, you know, be with Kitty. Yeah. I mean, that's part of why, like, I do understand the desire to see them finally together on page. But I prefer the idea of establishing them as exes and saying maybe they'll get back together someday, but having them Mm -hmm. see other people because... Quite honestly, I don't think Kitty has treated Rachel particularly well. It's true. There's times where she has and there's times when she hasn't. Definitely. Let them both grow up a little and then like Kate and Rachel can get back together in the future maybe. But right now, let Rachel date someone who really wants to date Rachel is how I feel about Mm -hmm. it. You know, I don't know. Sure. Yeah. That would make me very happy, honestly. I just want whatever is going to work for Rachel. Yeah, I would be pretty happy with any direction that they went surprise like if they went like Rachel dates Ilyana I'm into it I'm all about it I would actually love that to happen just because Kate would be so annoyed about it I know and you deserve it Kate well sorry you snooze you lose yeah for real 
you broke up with me to go back to your ex-boyfriend. And Eliana's like, who's my brother, by the way? So, like, what were you expecting us to do? Like, Seriously. <laughs> now, I will say that that was one of the best times. But also, whenever, like, uh, Kate leaves Pietro. Oh, well, yeah, altar. because Eliana tells her to. That's the best. Now, exactly. That was whenever I... And you know what? Rachel is not even doing anything. I was, like, so mad that Rachel didn't just, like, run up and be do, like, the... I object. Kate! <laughs> The graduate like, style. I, like, that really should have happened. The fact that that didn't happen made me be like, no, Ilyana was the one that was doing the gays work here. Like, Ilyana's yeah, yeah. the one. Well, I will say that once Bendis gets a hold of the characters, I do feel like it's Kate and Ilyana that gets pushed. Mm-hmm. It's very there on the page. They have a lot of interesting interactions that are very, like, coded. Again, it comes down to which of those relationships in the 80s you were more invested in. Because they're both there. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a, it's a choose-your-own-adventure, really. For sure. I always loved Rachel as a character, but I was more invested in Kitty and Ilyana as a potential couple. Mm -hmm. But then Ilyana gets taken off the page, right? So it's like there's no conflict in terms of... Like, it's only now that she has the choice. Because mm -hmm. it used to be, like, her romantic connection to Rachel doesn't really blossom until after Ileana's been lost to the Inferno. That's very true. Yeah. So I think it it feels like she dated them both. I mean, yeah. Like, she dates Pyotr. Pyotr breaks up with her. Then she's with Ileana. Then Ileana is lost in Inferno. And then she's with Rachel is what it feels like. And then she goes back to Pyotr. And Pete Wisdom happens after Rachel. That's the other thing. Yeah. Is wisdom doesn't enter the picture until Rachel is gone. Ugh, imagine dating, ugh, just like <laughs> dating Pete Wisdom after Rachel. Like, oh my God. Well, this is why I love the idea of a Betsy Rachel Wisdom love triangle in Excalibur where Betsy chooses Rachel. Mm -hmm. That would be really fun. Because <laughs> that's already, that's what it feels like is happening on the page right. already. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, just let it, just, I hope it just actually happens. Sure. Yeah, same. I'm here for it. Yeah. I mean, I like Pete Wisdom, but like Wisdom and Kitty is bad. No. And also anything that allows Rachel, I think, to be gay, <laughs> I'm going to pretty much yeah. just be oh, for. Sure. Well, that's the thing is at this point, like we're just gilding the lily, right? Because like all we want is an on-page confirmation that Rachel is gay. Yeah. Like, because that's it's what we been want. decades. And also, even if you look at like her Wikipedia, there's no mention of the years of subtext with this character. And I'm Nothing. just like, give me a damn break like that really bums me out it's a problem yeah and it's particularly i think dc is making marvel look embarrassing on this specific mm -hmm. point when catwoman harley quinn and poison ivy are all allowed to be bisexual on page get it together yeah for real do i think that the harley and ivy thing originates from like a male fantasy yes but has it become really important to a lot of queer women? Also, yes. You know, like, it's just a complicated thing. And I think that the Claremont queer women are very similar to that, right? It's like he thought it was kind of erotic and interesting. But now there are generations of lesbian and bisexual women who have seen themselves in these characters. Those are both characters too, though, right? That were overcoming a lot of trauma. And yeah. I think that the way that Harley and Ivy interact with each other as people who are going through trauma and are like getting over a lot of things. Who were both abused by male romantic partners. Yeah, I think that there's something very specifically healing about that relationship. I love it. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. And so, like, you can, whenever you, like, think about it, it's just, like, sure, right, like, sexy, I guess, whatever. But, like, on top of everything, like, there's also just the fact that it's a profound relationship for those reasons, right? Like, yes. for the overcoming abuse reasons, which is my case for Rachel and Ilyana and Psylocke. Yeah. <laughs> Betsy, you mean. Not... Yeah, ba- Betsy, sorry. Conum feels pretty heterosexual, but if she were to get with a woman, I feel like she and Storm would really vibe because mm. she is 10,000% Storm's type. Mm-hmm. Like hard-nosed, no-nonsense brunette assassin is like literally... And it would be really funny because Storm was never into Betsy, but she would be like, wow, <laughs> now that Conum's mind is back in this body, God, how did I never notice how hot you are? Yeah, totally. <laughs> because Betsy is not storm's type Betsy is way too neurotic good friends though yeah great friends but like no that's not the kind of woman that storm dates like the most neurotic woman storm is willing to date is sage (laughs) and like that's because sage doesn't talk about her feelings ever yeah storm likes a woman who is fun who can kill people with her bare hands and who likes a leather cat suit and they don't need to talk too much about feelings she didn't even want to talk about feelings with Forge. Like, she's just not, that's not her thing. Yeah. It's just never been her thing. Whereas Betsy's like, I want to talk about our relationship. Like, that would annoy <laughs> the shit out of her. Yeah. But you know who would be there for it? Rachel. Rachel would be like, tell me more. I love yes, to talk to you. I love that. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why when like Rogue is like, why can't anybody help me find Betsy? And like, <laughs> and. Rachel's like, don't say that. You know I love Betsy. And I'm like, do you? Tell me more. Tell me about this love for Betsy that you have. I also love when the two of them are like watching evil clone Betsy stand on the shore in her like very filmy nightgown. And Rachel's just like, well, it seems like it's Betsy. And it's just like, (laughs) like, like, how much have you observed Betsy's form in her filmy nightgowns? (laughs) But uh, I digress again. I'm just really, I've, I've gotten very much on that train. I'm really into all of their scenes together in Excalibur so mm-hmm. far. Yeah, I love it. Also, like, I feel like that is the kind of woman Betsy would date is like kind of a butch presenting. Like Betsy feels very much like when she's with girls, it's like a butch femme thing. Hmm. That is the vibe I get. So dreamy. Yeah, it just feels like it would be very classic, like... 80s girls at the club like this is my girlfriend isn't she pretty and like this is my girlfriend isn't she's such a stud like that is what it feels like to me mm-hmm. for betsy so i would love that for her i would love that for both of them the problem is of course they can't smoke i just want them to be like chain smoking at a club like that's what i want <laughs> marvel just needs to lift that that restriction anyway <laughs> what other racial stuff do you like from that late period? Because I I'm very hard pressed to find stuff I super like in it. Honestly, no, yeah, it's almost impossible. It I uh, no, it's pretty much all bad. I mean, it sucks, you know. Like it really does. It really does. And you get this sense that Rachel's just kind of lying to herself the whole time. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to see this. We already went through Rachel having to like come to grips with all of this stuff, and it's just so it's such a regression. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah. It sucks. It sucks. And I. I'm happy that finally in X Factor, it feels like my Rachel again. It's so nice to read X Factor because it's definitely like her and North Star being kind of the grumpy gay parents of the team. Like, yeah. I love their kind of chill dynamic with each other. I think that 
she is so herself in this story in a way that she's never really been able to be for a while. Like we're looking at like, you know, the natural progression of the Excalibur Rachel here, I think. And like the the person who's going to become Ascani, right? Like that's what yes. we're seeing. And that rules. Which is why, again, I want her to take the code name. Just be Ascani. Just, Just be, be Ascani. Yeah. All Just be 10 out of 10 Rachel fans agree. And by which I mean 10 Everyone is I've two. talked to. It's right, just yeah. you and I right now. But I'm going to sign the name. Petition, petition, petition. It's obvious. It's just the way to go. It's that Ascani is going to be like when Rachel just is out, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, this is the thing. Rachel needs to take the codename Ascani as part of her, by the way, I'm a lesbian. You knew that, right? Like, issue. Like, do it at the same time. Just do it. Yeah. She could be like, in the language of a future timeline that no longer exists, it means family of outsiders. Wink. And everyone's just like, okay, cool. Wink. I'm on the gay team. Wink. 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 It's her saying, I'm family, is literally what Ascani is, you know? I like, know. so. What's been interesting about X Factor for her, particularly, is like the main characters of that book are Polaris and Northstar. Mm-hmm. It's not like she's had that much introspective page time yet. I'm sure we'll get there, but there haven't been Rachel focused storylines yet. And yet, it's so indelibly Rachel every time she pops up. I'm yeah. just like, yes. There she is. Look, like it's so rewarding. It's like, oh, dang, a writer read the comics that I read. Great. Right. (laughs) Like, I mean, I happen to know because Teenies mentioned it on the pod when she was here that like Excalibur was much like for me, Leah's kind of like real book of her heart as a young person, Mm -hmm. like that classic run of Excalibur. So that makes perfect sense. Because like you said. It's like, here she is, finally. Like, we haven't seen this character since Excalibur 67. Oh, my God, I missed her so much. Yeah, it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to see. You know what? Don't do a full Rachel story if you don't want to. As long as you're, like, doing stories where Rachel is Rachel. (laughs) Yeah. I'm fine with it. We're only eight issues into X Factor. Right. And, frankly, Polaris probably won the fan poll. So I imagine we're going to be seeing a lot more of Rachel as the book develops oh for sure yeah i hope so i can only hope so and i love it it's just been such it's been so refreshing it's getting better and better every month i think and the fact that rachel is like the responsible pet owner (laughs) queer (laughs) like and i mean that's what's so nice about it once again is like i adopted a bunch of pets and i feel like my life got way way better because um it was like a grounding experience like you have to yeah and rachel absolutely is a dog lesbian i know I love it so much. It's great. It makes total sense. I do hope that the werewolf, that Amazing Baby develops like sentient intelligence. Oh, yeah, totally. The werewolves used to have because that would be fun. Oh, yeah. For like him to start talking. The dynamic between, oh, you're my son. See, that's actually not a dog. Rachel doesn't even have to have a romance literally for like a long old time (laughs) because I am so into the amazing baby Rachel like having conversations dynamic. Like I would be so into that. Yeah, I also like it because, again, the werewolves are a symbol of the suffering that Rachel went through in Mojo World that Mm -hmm. we never got to see. Yep. Like, there's something very profound about Betsy giving it to her. I think so, too. I love it. So, it's good. Now it's probably a good time to transition into our reader questions because we have a lot of them. Yeah. We have, like, ten. And that's the ones I curated from a lot more. So if I didn't pick your question, I'm sorry, but there were a lot. Francis Chin writes, 
Hi, Connor and Sarah. Hello, all the way from New Zealand. Connor, I thought your Lucy Lawless impression was spot on. <laughs> I'm currently loving the X Factor run by Leah Williams, and my question is this. Do you think Rachel and Polaris would be a good couple? Yes. The splish page of the two of them kicking ass in issue eight of X Factor was great, and they seem to get along well. I think Rachel needs to get her gay on and Luna needs to move on from Havoc. Yes. They have a history, but I feel that she clings to him for stability rather than real love. Once again, loving the pod, I hope it continues for as long as Krakoa does, maybe longer. Fran. <laughs> well, thank you, Fran. I really appreciate that. That made my heart feel good. I hope that I managed to keep it up for that whole paragraph. I find Lorna really straight, like unusually so for an X-Man, but that may just be me. <laughs> sure. Like, I feel like Lorna and Allie are the two where I'm just like, these are the straight, and Jean most of the time. Mm-hmm. Although like in Children of the Atom 1, she and Aurora playing pool, I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, they're lesbians. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, these women are fucking right now yeah, but you know yeah. who knows she has her moments she has her moments with Aurora and her moments with Emma actually honestly for sure and that's sort of it for me with Jean I agree with the point we made last time you were here that like Rachel is Jean's sublimated queerness yeah like made manifest into a person <laughs> yeah exactly so there isn't much left for Jean herself but yeah I find Lorna to be like very straight like to her own detriment like just like tragically straight you know what I mean (laughs) which is also how I feel about Allie so I don't know if I see Lorna with a woman but they have great chemistry they do if they were gonna do it Rachel would be a good choice Mm, the look too right like that green and red the red Mm. and the green yeah they're complementary colors it. it would be like very yeah Again, I am in favor of anything that lets Rachel be gay. I do think that they have great chemistry. Literally any storyline that allows Rachel to be textually a lesbian, I'm all for. I do think they have great chemistry. I do like them as friends, though. So I don't see a need for it, particularly because, like, again, Lorna just always reads as very hetero to me. But maybe she could dabble. It's Krakoa. Everybody's having, you know, a moment a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I think I could see like Lorna being any number of queer identities, right? Like I could see Lorna being non-binary. I mean, I think that there's like, there's things where I feel like, especially right now, Lorna is like exploring, you know? Yeah, that's the thing is right now would be a great time for Lorna to hook up with a woman just like, maybe I should try this. Maybe I should give it a try. The point of Lorna right now is her realizing that she hasn't been adequately characterized in 50 years. Mm -hmm. Like that is the point, right? And Leah is being very textual with that. So at this point, there's not much that Leah could have Lorna do that I would object to because I think that she really gets the character and also gets that the character doesn't really get the character. Oh, but, totally. like the character is trying to figure out who she is. And yeah. so I would be all for that. On the other hand, like I do feel bad for Rachel that she is like experimental ground mm. for like maybe by girls figuring it out. Maybe that can be good for her. I mean, maybe that's something for her to address. I right? mean, there's there's all kinds of love in this world. That's all I'm gonna say. Yeah, yeah. As a casual thing that happens between friends, I think it could be fun. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily see them dating. I guess is what I'm saying. Sure. But right. I could see it as like. I mean, we already know Lorna loves to party. Like, Lorna loves a drink. And I feel like if Lorna was a little tipsy and was like, you know what? Rachel's hot. Why not? You know, like, I could be fun. And then they could even talk about it and be and have Rachel be like, it is really not a big deal. Like, it is fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, if you want to do it again sometime, let me know. No pressure, though. Like, it's really okay. Gotta go feed amazing baby. Yeah, we were we were drinking. We had fun. It's really okay. Like, I'm just 
living my life. It's fine. That would be kind of fun. You are living your life, Rachel. Oh my God. That's the thing. I just want Rachel to live her life. This is how I feel about karma also. I'm just oh, like, just for like, real. Let them just like get laid. Yeah. With hot chicks. Like, Please. let's just do it. Please. I mean, karma has like a robot arm. I think that there is like, it doesn't she? Leg. Has, oh, it's a okay. leg. All right. Yeah. Gotcha. No, I got where you were going with that. And that would be... Yeah, leg would be a little ostentatious, though, I think. You know what? I think that <laughs> she's probably not doing too bad. That's all I'm going to say. We almost never see, like, her dating life. We've literally never seen Karma date anyone. We saw her in bed with a girl once uh-huh. when, like, she was summoned, but that's it. She's going to date Danny. I am manifesting with all my might. <laughs> date Sean and Danny. Danny. I am a Sean and Danny head. My Sean and Danny action figures are like in a clinch on the shelf right now next Mm -hmm, to my New Mutants mm -hmm. omnibus. I am all (laughs) about Sean and Danny. The first issue of the New Mutants ongoing is Danny accidentally pulling Sean's most horrible traumatic memories out of her head. Like there is a long history with these characters. I love the way Vita is writing them. Yes, it is a yes from me. They are in love. It is a yes from me. And it would make that time back when, when Danny was like, you should flirt with this barista. Like she was into me and like, I'm heterosexual, but. (laughs) Too bad I'm all straight and everything. Yeah. And Sean's like, Okay, like I don't know. Sean's I feel like, like be... this. People say this to me a lot. Why do a lot? Why do women just keep walking up? A lot and of ex women just keep they are <laughs> declaring to me how heterosexual they are. I yeah. know how it goes, Sean. I know how it goes. Yeah, and I feel like also like if you're into Kitty, which we knew Sean was, circa mechanics, Danny has a very similar energy. She does. You know, like they're two Claremont protagonists who have a very similar kind of personality. Very type. responsible. Yeah. Very much there for their friends. And like prone to speeches, like mm. prone to being the mom friend. Mm-hmm. Do like it. it's very much that. Do it. Just fucking do it. And when they were in Otherworld together in their like chic outfits, they looked so hot. Ugh. I'm a fan. Yeah, that's a different episode for sure. But that's a different episode. Come back listen. in June for the Karma episode. Mm-hmm. We'll get into it. I'll we'll be listening. Can you believe I'm scheduled that far out now? Oh yeah, I can. <laughs> it's crazy. That's how it is with bitches on comics. Yeah. I'm looking at the spreadsheet now, and I'm like, I'm telling people, I'm like, well, I can book you in July, and I'm like, totally. how is this happening? To yeah. Me? To wrap that question back up, I love the rapport right now between Rachel and Lorna in X Factor. I would be fine with it just being friendly, but I also think it would be fun if they hooked up and it was just like not that big a deal, but it was just a thing. I think that would be fun. Mm -hmm. And I wish that they would let men do that too, but you know, they never do in anything. Yeah. Christopher Martin writes, hello, Connor and Sarah. Thanks so much for the podcast and all the work you do. I find your insights into these characters really valuable and revelatory and I eagerly await your episode each week. The last episode you two did together was so good. I had a bad breakup and subsequent nervous breakdown in December, and I listened to the Gene episode every time I was alone to calm my anxiety. It made me feel like I had friends I could talk about Gene Grey with. Don't discount the valuable work you do. It made a difference to me, and I'm sure to others in this difficult time. Well, I just want to say thank you thank for you. writing in. That really made me feel good. So thank you. And That's I hope very that you're doing beautiful. better. Yeah. Yeah. I hope you're doing better too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm just really glad we could be there for you. That's, yeah. Because this, this year has fucking sucked. So, mm-hmm. you know, every little bit that helps, I'm really happy that we could do that. Yeah. My question about Rachel has to do with her hound outfit, specifically as it's being revisited for the Hellfire Gala this summer. 
gala gala how do we say it both are correct but if it's I rachel it's the gala <laughs> the gala true for the hellfire gala this summer do you think it's dramatic for her to revisit that look considering its apocalyptic timeline origins i think it's a good look and i like that it upsets the flat scans but i'm wondering if it's re-traumatizing for her to wear especially when there's so much trauma involved in her backstory <laughs> just wondering what your opinion might be thanks again for all that you do can't wait to listen so um so <laughs> several of you wrote in about this yeah so i definitely wanted to tackle it uh-huh that that outfit um if you look at the positioning of the spikes on that outfit then it will remind you of suits of another kind <laughs> mm -hmm. i feel like this is her really embracing her fetishy side and i think that that is good and uh, it's probably very emotionally healing for her is what I would think. That's the vibe that I get from this situation. I think that there's other times when we could have questioned this more, perhaps in like Excalibur, whenever we had like no context for her starting to wear that outfit again. Yeah. However, here, I think it works really well because it is hella gay. And yeah, to me, it just, it, I'm just like, maybe she's like getting in touch with some fetishes. Like maybe she's kind of like working some stuff out in a way that is good for her. To me, I didn't object to it at all because Rachel wore this outfit for all of classic Excalibur. Uh -huh. Like not this hyper fetishized version of I it. I mean, but yeah. <laughs> this is the like... actual red hound outfit as opposed to, I will note, the black one that she wore in the future. Mm-hmm. The hound outfit that Ahab put her in was black. The yep. red one is an outfit she gets in Mojo World that she then wears for pretty much all of Excalibur. Mm -hmm. I see it in Excalibur as her reclaiming that for herself, as her being like, I can wear this. This doesn't define me and it makes me feel powerful to wear it on my own terms. Yeah, she's hot. Like when she dresses that yeah. way, like she's totally reclaiming it. Like that's, uh, I think, a big part of what made it workable there, right? Yeah. And if you look at her civilian clothes in that time, they're always leather, PVC, fetish E. Like she's into that aesthetic. And in part, it's because Claremont's into that aesthetic, right? Uh -huh. But <laughs> she's the character, much like Storm's punk period, Rachel is the character who wears that fetish wear as like a fashion statement and is into it. So it makes total sense to me. In terms of why would she wear this, the muzzle, I think, bothers a lot of people. Here's what I have to say about it. <sighs> I don't want to be too fine a point on it, but there are a lot of male writers I wouldn't trust to do this. Let's just say. The fact that it's Leah Williams who conceived this look, like it's Russell Dodderman's design, but he notes in the article that he did with Entertainment Weekly about them that he worked very closely with Leah on it and that she wanted specifically a version of the hound look that was a fetish look and she specified the muzzle. If you read this run of X Factor, it is explicitly on the page about trauma. All of these characters are traumatized in one way or another, and it's what the book's about, right? Like, in a lot of ways. It's a theme that comes up again and again and again, and it's a theme that Leah Williams is particularly gifted at writing. I think What If Magic is the best on-page treatment of Ilyana's child sex abuse mm -hmm. backstory yep. ever. Totally. So... I trust whatever she's going to do with it. 
And I think that fans should maybe be a little more generous with their interpretations of what the writers are thinking. I don't think that they've steered us wrong yet. And it's been okay for how many dudes to do this, you know, so far. Right. It's like actually having like a queer creator doing something like this and also just an acknowledgement of fetish wear like on the page is something that we don't, it's like, I would note that there's all kinds of parts of X Factor, too, that's just like not every queer person has to be like the respectable queer. Yes. Thank God. I'm proud of her for not being respectable and for not being afraid of making people uncomfortable with this look, I guess, is how I would read it if it was like, I mean, we're talking about people that are making these choices, obviously, like not characters. But if I was looking at it as a character choice, yeah, which, yeah, that's what we're looking at is like, yeah, I mean, I think it's good for her. I really do. I also think that the muzzle is important. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, I haven't talked to Leah Williams about it, but To me, it's multifaceted, right? The point of the mutant fashion in the really heightened looks is that they're only possible through the use of mutant powers. Storm's look is half her power. Jean is floating stuff around her head as a crown. Emma uses her diamond skin as part of the look and the reveal. Rachel is a telepath. She doesn't need her mouth free to speak. And I think that is important. Yeah. I also think that it is vitally important that it's a hound reference, right? Much like the rest of the outfit. But no one has succeeded in muzzling Rachel Summers. Yeah, no, that's not a thing, right? Like, <laughs> And you can't do it. Like, put a muzzle on me, I'm going to say whatever I feel. It's a statement she's making that I think is very powerful. So I like it. I also think the braid of red hair that she's using as a leash for Amazing Baby is fucking sick. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. That's a good look for Amazing Baby. Yeah. But it also, like, it's longer than her hair has ever been. She's always had this very close-cropped hair thing, whereas Jean is always sort of this flowing locks, her mother. And so to be like, here are my flowing locks. They're a leash. Mm-hmm. that I could put you on if I felt like it is like a fun it's very Rachel I yeah. don't know I just think it's really good and it is a flip of the power dynamic and I'm very into I mean like Kate is wearing a brooch with a bullet on it and Warren and Monet are wearing looks that reference Archangel and Penance yeah like who's allowed right like that's kind of how it feels right sometimes. like a lot of these looks are about the characters acknowledging the things I mean Emma's diamond form is something her body manifested to save her life in the genocide of Genosha. Yeah. And she's choosing to display it as a beautiful thing. That is defiant, right? She's saying to these humans, the Sentinels couldn't kill me and neither can you. Yeah. And like, there's things that you just embrace about yourself. Like, that's how I feel kind of about... Her keeping like face tattoo that maybe is connected to something that's really painful is like, well, that's how she looks. Like, I mean, it kind of sucks to like always be like covering it because to me, that's just like she's doing that for you, not for her. Right. Like she knows that they're there. So I just I don't know. Like, that's the thing about Rachel's face tattoos. I don't think she ever looks in the mirror and doesn't see them. Yeah, I think that's true. Because that's a telepathic projection she's doing for other people. And it's how she's come to see her face. We all change in some way over our lives, you know, and it's just like, yeah. And I mean, to me, all of that is just more Rachel accepting Rachel. And, you know, once again, I think that like there is often like a, a 
lot put on Rachel to be like, well, why isn't she like, why is she making a callback to something from her past? And it's like all of the other X-Men do that all of the time. Constantly. I also think I'm going to be real. People pointed to recent times when Rachel has been really traumatized about the Hound stuff and like revisiting it. I find those kind of regressive moments because I think she processed all of that back in Excalibur. And you can still be hurt by something. But yeah, it's definitely Of course, like... things can come back up. But I feel like we've been retreading it for a long time. Yeah. And I like to think that while it's something horrible that happened to her and you never fully get over trauma. Yeah. The idea that this is something that is really crippling to her, I think is out of step with the way she was characterized in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, I think so too. So I'd like to have her say, fuck you, I was a hound and I'm not that anymore and no one can ever take power over me again. I refuse. I love it. So I like it. Which leads into a related question that I really liked. Viet Dinh writes, hello Connor and wonderful guest Sarah. So a few days ago, Russell Donovan released his incredible designs for the Hellfire Gala, and they were so sickening that I gagged, died, and came back to life a new man. <laughs> One thing that stuck out to me, though, was that while most fans I've seen online have nothing but high praise for the designs, a lot of them didn't like the idea that Rachel was reviving her old hound costume as fashion. My question is about the history of X-Men reclaiming identities given to them by villains. It's a surprisingly common pattern in the series, especially with its female characters. Off the top of my head, Polaris, Psylocke, and Rachel either reclaimed their code names and or their outfits from villains. What do you two think of this pattern? Is it empowering? Is it sexist? Does it work in some cases and not in others? For instance, we can just pretend Mystique doesn't count. And maybe there are some mutants just more comfortable with reclaiming and moving on from old trauma now that the Krakoa era allows them to no longer live in fear. Thanks for answering, Vinny. So, first of all, that point about Krakoa is exactly critical, I think. You can't hurt us anymore is part of the point of the Hellfire Gala. Mm -hmm. Wearing the ways you've been oppressed and damaged and harmed by people who thought less of you is part of that as armor like that makes a lot of sense to me it's like look at what you've done to us and yet we thrive like that I fully think is powerful in terms of the general question this made me think and like so yes Polaris and Psylocke are code names that they got from villains Eric the Red and Mojo respectively Polaris's purple costume she wore through the 70s was also the one Eric the Red put her in and her costume before that is the one that Mesmero put her in Psylocke's swimsuit outfit that now Conan is wearing, which makes sense. People are like, why would she wear that? I'm like, because it was her outfit. Yeah, she's the one. <laughs> if Betsy <laughs> like, were wearing Betsy that outfit, Betsy got that you'd be from like, the no hand, things. but that was like... Matsuo put Betsy in that because it was Conan's outfit. Mm -hmm. So that I don't have a problem with. Like, if you want to give her some pants, I'm all for it. I'm just saying, it makes total sense that Conan would wear it. It's her clothes. But when Betsy wore it forever, it's an outfit the hand gave her. And Rachel in the Hound costume obviously is, as we were saying, a similar thing, whether it's the original one she got from Ahab or the red one she gets from Mojo and Spiral. I thought about it, though, and this is also true of male characters in the X-Men. Havoc gets his costume and his code name from Trask in the 60s. Warren becomes Archangel because of Apocalypse and wears that costume for like 25 years, basically. And the classic angel costume the white and red one that initially is white and blue but with the halo logo magneto gives him that in the 60s in the savage land arc toward the end of the original run and it's actually used to drain his mutant energies which is like something that you don't have to worry about but it's initially used to attack him it's like a trap so there's a long history of this across the board really it's not just something that happens to female characters 
I think it is something that is somewhat unique to the X-Men. You don't see this as much in other Marvel superhero teams, particularly. But I think that it is reflective of what Sarah was just talking about, which is that even if you are traumatized and things are done to you in a violent way, they're still part of who you are. And I think that there's a power in saying, I am Polaris, or I am Havoc, or... I wear this costume because I look fucking good in it, you know, like no matter where I got it. I think divorcing it from the context is actually a way of empowering yourself. Nobody knows, unless you're a nerd who knew this because you're a nerd or because you listen to this podcast, it's never something that's ever come up on page that Psylocke is a title that Mojo gave her, Mm -hmm. you know? Like at this point, it has nothing to do with Mojo at all. She liked it, so she kept it. Yeah, for sure. That's kind of how I feel about this stuff. I think that it is reflective of the minority aspect of the X-Men that sometimes the things that dominant culture puts on you, you choose to reclaim and wear as armor. Like, I think that that makes sense. So I don't have a problem with it. Like, just coming from a queer perspective, like, I am a faggot and I love being a faggot. Fuck you. Like, that's kind of how I feel about it. You know what I'm saying? So that's that's kind of how I feel about it in terms of the X-Men reclaiming things placed upon them by their foes. And we all have physical manifestations of things that are painful for us. You know, it's like, to me, I wear my grandma's earrings every day since she died. You know, like I have a tattoo that says yes, because I wanted to see positive things when I look in the mirror. I think that there are things that we all do that we are reflecting the painful things that have happened to us. And I mean, on a practical level, of course, it's that it's just a good way to introduce a new costume. And, you know, again, it's writers making these decisions. But Mm -hmm. I think you can make, I think you can make it make sense. And I think it's something very human to have these characters do is to say, this is mine now, no matter how I got it. Yeah. You know? Of course. And to make that as a choice. Yeah. I think it's very important. Like an active choice. Yeah. Jesse Adkins writes, Hi, Connor and Sarah. Absolutely loving the pod and very excited for you to talk about this lesbian icon, TM. I know you'll probably cover the best Rachel Summers stories, but I was wondering what you think the gayest Rachel stories are, or are those two lists identical? I really love all the Rachel stuff in the Krakoa era, and I'm going absolutely feral over her gala look, so I need more. <laughs> Thanks for the lovely podcast and keep being fabulous, Jesse. P.S. The Discord community has been a really fun place to talk shop about comics. I've never felt like I've had a space before to chat with other comics fans without running into these super toxic people. And it's really nice to have a group of people to gush over Hellfire Gala looks with. Smiley face. Hmm. Well, thank you. That's good to hear. The Discord community is fun. If anybody wants to join, you can find a link at Cerebrocast.com. Just please don't bring any bad vibes because as she has said, it's pretty pleasant, which I have not really experienced in a lot of fandom spaces. (laughs) So that's been nice. So... What are, that we haven't mentioned, because we've mentioned a bunch of them, are there any other, like, super gay Rachel stories we haven't talked about? Just Rachel's general look, I guess, for a really long time. The fact that she prioritizes Kate all of the time. She's super queer in Excalibur and definitely reads, like, the girl who, like, is out, like, maybe dating on her own time and just not communicating that to her larger friend group because she Mm -hmm. doesn't know how they would react. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing. Even in X Factor, right? It's like she's so, like, just radiates queerness. But at the same time, you're like, oh, well, she doesn't like she hasn't kissed anybody or anything. And it's just like, well, that's part of Rachel is they're really 
consistent with like kind of portraying her as a very gay character without necessarily uh her doing anything gay right but then also she (laughs) she that i would say the gayest thing is actually a story that's not very good but it's whenever um kate is like colossus came back from the dead and rachel's like so you're not gonna sleep in my bed anymore (laughs) iconic that to me was the gayest, um, but it was not a not a great story, right? Yeah, no, not ideal. But that was very queer, and I was like, "That is like on the page right there." It is. You're not going to sleep in my bed anymore. Is, I mean, come on. This is again why I want to just see flashbacks to the time that they were dating, and they're just exes, and it's fine. I'm cool and with people it. knew. Like that's what I want is for people to have known. Like with Mystique and Destiny, people are yeah. just like, "Oh yeah, like of course Kate and Rachel used to date." Yeah, that's not news to their friends. It might be news. Like it'd be funny if Brian had no idea, <laughs> and Megan is like, "Honey, you didn't know that." Like, yeah, of course they were dating. <laughs> And he's just like, I had no idea they were dating. It never occurred to me. And she's like, that's crazy, love. Like, they've been dating for years. <laughs> they first hooked up in the lighthouse. We were all living together. <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> Sorry for giving you my Brian and Megan puppet theater there. I love it. Oh, my God. I had no idea how much I needed it. In my head, Megan sounds like EastEnders and Brian has just like the most RP accent of all time. And I like love the idea of them talking to each other and him just sometimes being like, I can't understand what you're saying. Can you please say that again and talk slower? (laughs) In any case. So yeah, I think that that is the vibe generally. Like she just exists gaily. But if you want to go to specific stories, like I'll just revisit a couple that we've mentioned. All of the stuff with Rachel and Celine is really gay, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's older gay taking advantage yeah. of younger gay situation. Yeah. So it has creepy vibes, but... Like, Celine is sexually predatory at all times. That's yep. just kind of like... I mean, she's a vampire, right? Sure. Like, that is what vampires are. They let her do it on the page with Wither in the Necrotia era stuff. But uh-huh. that's absolutely what's happening with Rachel in the 80s stories as well. I love... All of the Kitty and Rachel stuff in Excalibur. There's a great sequence where Rachel takes Kitty shopping and forces her to like wear sexy clothes and Uh Kitty's uncomfortable. And Rachel's like, you look amazing. Like, shut up. Which is fun. Excalibur 75, honestly, where she leaves for the time stream is like that scene with her and Kitty is worth reading. It's like just a page that really is worth reading. Everything that has to do with Mother Iscani. Gay. Yeah. Like is just gay as hell. Also, the love triangle in Excalibur between her and Kitty and Alistair Stewart is really funny because Kitty has a huge crush on Alistair. Alistair is obsessed with Rachel and Rachel could not be less interested in Alistair. And it's extremely amusing for that reason. Yeah, Excalibur, just in general, if you haven't read classic Excalibur, is just like one of the most erotic Marvel comics ever, but in a way that's mostly pretty wholesome. Mm -hmm. The only thing that's really like alarming is the way that Saturnine like grooms Kitty. Yep. In a very overt way. Yep. She's the Celine right there. Oh, so Kate and Rachel both have one. Yes. And it's that same Victorian or pre-Victorian even like sort of 18th century literature trope of like the older lesbian Mm -hmm. manipulating the young girl. Or it's like it's cruel intentions, right? Like there's, you know, they're the same age in that. But it's that thing. Right. Otherwise, it's mostly pretty wholesome, even when it's pretty kinky. And I just recommend it. The one thing that's like not wholesome, but it's intentionally not wholesome is like Brian and Megan's relationship is really complicated and messed up for a really long time. Trigger warning on that, I guess. Yeah. If, 
if you're sensitive to that like he's an alcoholic and he's emotionally abusive to her and cheats yeah. on her so it's it's hard to read but it's very intentional and i think that over the course of excalibur it grows in ways that are really interesting and i love them now together a lot sure. now that he's yeah. like sober and she's self-assured and they can communicate and they treat each other well and he treats her really well mm -hmm. it's a rare relationship in, in superhero comics in that they lean into the messiness of it and the ugly parts of it in a way that i think a lot of stories don't but otherwise like all the rachel and kitty stuff is mostly just like gay and fun and i think that that's worth reading there's a moment i forget what it's from but like Hepzibah is talking to Rachel. Oh. <laughs> yeah. They're like at an event. I can't even remember what the event is. Like this is just a, it's literally just a page that's burned into my mind. Yeah. It was the first time I felt like glimmers of Rachel were coming back and she started wearing that, people call it the turkey coat, but it's like that long red dredge coat with the, the frayed edges that has the spikes on the shoulders, which at least it was like, oh, it looks like Rachel again. Thank God. Mm -hmm. After like 10 years of her not looking like Rachel. Yeah. And... Hepzibah, who, this is the thing that's a little weird, is that Hepzibah is um, Rachel's step-grandmother, if you think about it. You're my step-grandma. Yeah. Because she's Corsair's, like, paramour. Mm, but yeah. at the time, Corsair was dead, right? I think. So, I don't know. And Hepzibah's like, she's about it, honestly. And I'm just like, I really admire her for shooting her shot, honestly. Yeah. Hepzibah's looking at Rachel and she's like, do you wear spikes on everything or just for special occasions and, or whatever? And yeah. like Rachel's like, everything. Yeah. And Hepzibah's like, I'm going to get you a drink. And it's just like very like. Yeah, no, Hepzibah's I just fully like... believe that they, I fully believe that they hooked up. It's like very much there. Honestly, like, yeah, the, the more that Rachel can do to just embrace the weirdness that she's been born into, you know, I'm just yeah. like, go for yeah. it, girl. Like, honestly, who among us is going to, you know, it's like Hepzibah. What a babe. It's like, bang that alien. Like, go whatever. for it, girl. You don't like, even know your grandpa. Yeah. Who cares? Who cares? Like <laughs> just do it. <laughs> It's, it's messy, but it's messy for us. It's not messy it's for the you. Like, we're it's the fine. ones that are trying we're the to ones who know. this out. We're the ones who are thinking about the family tree of it all. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it's fine. So, yeah, I love that moment. I would say don't read X-Men Gold. That's the least gay Rachel's ever been. She honestly, still the most gay, though, because her and but, like, that's the Nightcrawler thing, it's so have wrong. no that, chemistry. I was going to say, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, like, it might be worth reading just because it is a really remarkable presentation of someone fighting their gayness yeah a hundred percent and just going along with what is easiest but like she is so passive in that book and the outfit is not the one and yeah the code name is bad and it's just all x-men gold is a compulsory heterosexuality nightmare mm -hmm. and when you read it you just long to wake into a lesbian world like you picture it as like a nightmare that kate and rachel are stuck in and like hopefully eventually something will startle them awake and they'll be in bed together because yeah. like this is so twisted and wrong. The yeah. whole run of the comic. The, the queerest thing that happens is whenever she phases through <laughs> Piator's hand and you're just like, oh God, yes, yeah. good, great. Yeah. I'm here for that. But yeah, yeah, it is rough. So yeah, those would be my, my hot tips. Just classic Excalibur, classic Uncanny, and um, just little moments here and there. I mean, honestly, if you ask on Twitter, like, where is, what are some like real hot Rachel moments? You will get answers. <laughs> like people have done the research and will tell you everything you need to know. Yeah, but we need a lot more. I'll say that. 
And we need them to be explicit on the page. We need her to be like on a motorcycle with ladies on the back. That's what we need. <laughs> I, want I need that it for her. I want it for her. I want it for her so bad. Rubot writes, hey, Connor, I'm writing this as I'm halfway through the Fun Dazzler podcast. And as a gay disco DJ, I'm wishing I could opine with you and Evan on homophobia regarding disco music and Ali's prominence in gay culture. Mm. But maybe we can have a Cerebro party once the pandemic ends. That would be fun. I'm writing to ask about the much talked about rumor that Rachel was meant to be Gene and Logan's child, actually, from the future. It's an often discussed rumor, but Claremont has gone on record saying Rachel was supposed to be Gene and Phoenix's child without Scott's genetic makeup. Not sure if that ever came true in the books, but I'm wondering if there are any realities where Gene and Logan had a kid. With alternate reality couples and kids being the rage, I'm surprised no one has explored that somewhere. As always, thanks for the deep dive on these characters. It's inspired me to do my own reread of my beloved heroes, and it's just so fun to pick up on the nuance with my adult eyes. Excelsior, Brew. So, Mm-mm. don't see no. Rachel being Logan's kid. I just don't. No, absolutely not. It was a very popular fan theory because of the hound thing. People saw that as making... <laughs> Wolverine. <laughs> well, Wolverine's a tracker. So it was like, okay, it's Gene sure. and Wolverine's powers like working together or whatever, right? And also Rachel's like aggressive, but it's just not... It's never on the page and it's not... It doesn't make sense. Honestly. No, it doesn't make sense. Personality-wise, it doesn't make sense. It would make the storyline where Logan tries to kill her to prevent her from murdering Celine way more messed up way more fucked up also than it he already creeps is, on which is her already pretty... in like mike millar's run on oh, wolverine God. for a well, second well we don't have to so... we don't have to talk about that we that's... don't have to talk about it i don't acknowledge mark miller comics. ever yeah 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 i'm cool with that as well that one page in civil war where emma tells tony to go fuck himself is like the only mark miller page <laughs> that exists it's so weird how he just wrote that one page of comics and it's wild that this guy just wrote one page of comics and then never wrote a comic again. It's like truly <laughs> impressive. But it's a great page. Uh, yeah, there's all kinds of reasons not to do it, though, I will say. Yeah. So Chris did reveal. I love that I was when I just like call him Chris, like he's my friend. You know, Chris and I. Claremont did say, I think it was actually the, said for the first time explicitly on the Jay and Miles podcast, that his intention was that. Rachel was born parthenogenically from the Phoenix and that there is no father. Mm-hmm. I like that for how gay it is. Yeah, I don't mind that. I will say that I've mentioned this in the podcast before. Paul Smith draws Rachel looking so much yes. like Scott. Yeah. That I just find it hard to believe she's not Scott's kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they have similar mannerisms, and it makes a lot more sense than her being Wolverine's kid. Yeah, sure. she's a lot more like Scott than she is like Jean mm-hmm. or like Logan. Like, yeah. she is a Summers. That's part of why Rachel Gray threw me. Sure. Because she's the most Summers character. She does act like a Scott Summers a lot, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad she's back to Rachel Summers, because I'm just like, that is who she is, right? Sure. I do think that... It's possible to interpret like she was born of the Phoenix, but of a Phoenix who was involved with Scott. So it would make sense that the Phoenix would generate a child that is biologically Scott's. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, yeah, you could fantasy it up in a way that makes sense. I don't really have a problem with saying that both are true. Mm -hmm. The problem with her being the child of the Phoenix now is that she has been so divorced from the phoenix as a concept now for like 20 years that the connection is kind of lost because the point back in the 80s was that the the phoenix was intrinsic to rachel yeah 
it was like breathing for her. And that's why she didn't go dark. She was never corrupted by the power of the Phoenix because it was part of her. Yeah. Which ruled. <laughs> that Which was is amazing. So cool. And is better than any story that's been told with the Phoenix since 1995. For sure. So I would love to throw them all out and just go back to that. But it's been such a long time that I don't know that it really makes sense anymore. And the way that they keep trying to do, as you say, Phoenix is a parasite. Like, well, like Phoenix is a, just a boring, villainous cosmic entity Ugh. that any that anybody can host. Yeah, super boring. And then so it's boring just like, and all it's going to do is drag Rachel down at this point. That's sucks. the thing. Like, I just, it's like, well, it's like either give it to Rachel permanently and like editorial tells people no more nonsense with the Phoenix. Yeah, which they're not going to do. Which they're not right going to do right now, certainly. At this point, I'm like, let's just not worry about the Phoenix. The problem is that everything that's been done with the Phoenix since the 90s, like since Rachel went into the time stream and became Mother Iscani. Not great. Besides Morrison's story with Jean, all of it has just hurt the lore of the Phoenix, hurt the concept of the Phoenix, and significantly hurt Jean and Rachel as characters. And just misunderstood the whole dang thing. Yeah, it's, it's just, just like not everything right. we loved about it is not here. So, all right. So at this point, I'm just like, let's not fuck with Let the that. Avengers have it. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Let the Avengers have it until we've gotten whatever Yaya's out. And then I'm sure Jonathan Hickman has some brilliant Phoenix story in mind for like, six years from now and that'd be great but right now let's not yeah i love that all of this phoenix nonsense is happening in the avengers books and it's just not acknowledged in the krakoa books at yeah all. like fine. no one has mentioned it because guess what we don't care even though wolverine's involved in both he just like doesn't bring it up on krakoa because he knows better but gene doesn't <laughs> want to hear about this as for any realities where gene and logan have had a child I actually googled this because i couldn't think of one but there is a little girl named Catherine howlett <laughs> In Spider-Man Renew Your Vows by Jerry Conway, who is Jean and Wolverine's child on an alternate <laughs> Earth. I don't know why she would be named Catherine. That's so funny to me. I mean, it's just there's a lot of Catherines, right? Yeah, like, that is now. sort of the... I mean, I guess maybe she's named after Kitty, like Wolverine named her after Kitty. Oh, yeah, I guess it'd be Wolverine, right? Yeah, because I'm just like, I don't... <laughs> if Jean named a kid, she would name it like such a... Like, I don't know. I Actually, maybe Catherine. I feel like it would be such like an ordinary <laughs> name. This is my daughter, Elizabeth. <laughs> actually, I think if Jean had a daughter and she didn't go with Rachel, she would go with Sarah. After her sister got murdered. She would name, and after me. <laughs> and after you. Spelled the same way, even. Like Sarah Gray. I feel like that's where she would go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Catherine is a weird one. I wonder why. Catherine's a weird one. Because that's also, that's like, that's Scott's mom. Yeah. It's actually very weird. Kitty and Scott's mom are both Catherine Ann. Oh, huh. And Rachel Ann. <gasps> and Rachel Ann is also an Ann. But I mean, that's just because a lot of people have the middle names like Ann, Elizabeth. Like those are just common. Oh, I was sorry. I went into a very weird place where I was like, what if they accidentally called each other Ann like during sex? And like, okay, <laughs> let's come back. Sorry. <laughs> that's a very gay problem, though. It's like know. when you hook up with someone who has the same name the as same you. The same name as you. I know. Always well, a, Sarah, a struggle. I can tell you. <laughs> I bet. I bet. I have not had as much of a problem with Connors because it was not a trendy name when I was ah, born. Yes. So it got trendy. But all of the Connors are like five or six years younger than me and I'm not usually into like younger guys right, yeah. so that has not really been a problem for me but there's a lot of Jameses which is my dad's name and I always oh, find God. that 
weird. Yeah. Like I've hooked up with many a James and just been like, we can't say names right now. Yeah. Yeah, babe. That's great. Like, you know, like it just needs to be, needs to be babe. <laughs> anyway, all that to say, that's the only alternate universe child of Gene and Logan I was able to find. And frankly, I think that's fine. Agree. I don't need to read that. Logan has enough alternate reality children. I like don't need more of them. I'm like, sorry to Gene for <laughs> being the, having to have a kid with Logan, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I will say like, I like what they're doing with them now. I really do. But I did love in x-men red which as we discussed last time i'm mixed she on would, but i really yeah, i feel like she would never have logan's kid i do like in the annual when he's like when old man logan's like you're not my genie and she's like i was never your genie no logan i was never any logan's actually yeah yeah, yeah. i love that because like she's hot for him but she's not having his baby Sorry. there's no way it's like yeah what are you talking about yeah no, it just doesn't even absolutely make sense. not does not compute for me <laughs> Catherine that's so odd oh my god not Sarah or Elaine yeah if you're gonna go with something classic yeah you got two of them in the family I don't know whatever weird Maximilian Thurnwald writes and first of all I just need to pause to say that Maximilian Thurnwald is an amazing name that should be used (laughs) for a supervillain of some kind not to suggest that you're evil I just think it's a cool supervillain name that someone (laughs) should have hi Connor and Sarah thank you both for taking time to create and participate in this podcast respectively Connor, you've mentioned a few times in previous episodes that Rachel has no counterparts in any other universes and that she's aware of this fact. You've also implied that this would make her feel a bit shitty. Is this depicted on panel? And whether or not that's the case, do you think this impacts or informs the characterization of Rachel on the pages of the comics? Mm. So this is first introduced in the cross-time caper in Excalibur, Mm -hmm. where Excalibur meets like a billion different Excaliburs on various Earths, and there's never a Rachel. It is implied that maybe this is why Saturnine was looking for her in The Sword is Drawn. Mm -hmm. Because she's a multiversal anomaly. She doesn't have counterparts in other worlds. Which, if you're Saturnine, you would find troubling, right? Because that's not normal. Then in House of M, also by Claremont, in that story, we see Betsy, like split into all of the alternate Betsy's for a moment when they're in I think the I think they're in the white hot room actually it's like a weird moment and Rachel reiterates there are no other me's and this is a thing that had been problematic because there were a few non-Claremont stories where an alternate Rachel had existed like Franklin Richards's wife in Hyperstorm's future and so in the House of M story Rachel says explicitly There are other worlds where Scott and Jean have a daughter named Rachel, but none of them are me, which is Claremont fixing it, basically, right? Mm -hmm. I think it is important to the character. It has never been explained why this is the case. I think that the reason is, if you go to Claremont's intention, if she is the parthenogenic child of the phoenix... There is only one phoenix in the entire multiverse. It exists across all realities at once. So Rachel, therefore, also exists across all realities at once. Mm -hmm. This also would explain why back in the original Days of Future Past story, when Rachel sent Kate Pride back in time, it was to the wrong timeline. Mm -hmm. And why Rachel then followed to that same wrong timeline, because Rachel exists in all timelines and so the subjectivity of the timeline is not something that she was quite equipped to deal with especially at 17 or whatever that's my read on it is that like the phoenix she's a multiversal constant i agree it is again something that has been lost given that she is no longer really connected to the phoenix in any Uh significant way 
I do think she should be. So again, like someday, maybe we'll come back around. But the whys of it and all that have never really been explored. It's part of what has made Rachel a tricky character because she isn't really in any what ifs type stories, right? Right, yeah. It also means, by the way, um, this isn't, I don't think this is intentional necessarily, but it's just true. She's never been in an adaptation, ever. Yep. She never appears in the animated series. She never appears in Evolution. She never appears in the films because those are all alternate Earths, right? And so there's mm -hmm. no Rachel. I do feel like that is a thing that is, I could be, like, I can't think of one that she appears in. I mean, there's no ultimate Rachel Summers, for instance, you know? Yeah, thank God. Right. Yeah, well, right. Like, I mean, I mean, honestly, Ultimate Jean is, like, very Rachel in a lot of ways. Sure. Except that she's not gay. But, like, the design, I mean, they gave her the, the short haircut. Like, it was very much kind of a synthesis. And she has mm -hmm. more of, like, an aggressive attitude. I think that part of how it's impacted Rachel's characterization is that it makes her feel more isolated and more different and that's like again it's a very queer moment right like there's something wrong and different about you that no one else can understand like it, it has that quality to it i would love to see her have an actual conversation about it with saturnine now that saturnine's back hmm. and maybe saturnine could like yeah that might be interesting but it's something that only Claremont has ever really touched on yes because it clearly tied into his overall plan for rachel that other writers just fully derailed. <laughs> other writers were like, not about it. Yeah. Garrett Rooney writes, and the subject line said, a question about the character never to be known as prestige. <laughs> Except for by Kate. I mean, come on. It's her pet name. But here's the thing about Kate. She's bad at coming up with costumes and code names. I That's like always it. been her problem. So like, Rachel, you can't let Kate design you a look. It's so weird. She just looks like a Legion of Superheroes character and not one of the mm -hmm. cool ones that Dave Cockrum designed. Like yeah. <laughs> one of the boring ones from like Circa Zero Hour. You right, know what I right. mean? Like, sure. Yeah. Anyway. Hi, Connor and Sarah. So glad you're doing an episode about Rachel. She's one of my favorite characters and it's so exciting to be delving into her often confusing history. I find her particularly interesting because she's a character who has an often bifurcated nature. Half the time we get stories that are super tied into Rachel's background. The Dark Future, the Phoenix Force, her time as a hound, Ahab, Mother Iscani, etc. The other half of the time, she's just this person hanging out in the present day of 616, and we mostly ignore the fact that her backstory is incredibly screwed up. Why does Marvel seem to have an inability to split the difference? They never seem to acknowledge Rachel's weird history when not telling a story that's explicitly about it. Thanks, Garrett. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's probably true in a lot of ways, because isn't that, I mean, uh, there's like, there's nods to it, but I think that there has been work done multiple times to simplify Rachel uh, yeah. to make her a little bit more palatable for people and it's always a mistake that's what I think always this is what Rachel Gray is right like the whole Marvel girl Rachel Gray era is just an attempt to make Rachel another telepath you have around without yeah. any of the interesting things about Rachel and that's why it doesn't work it doesn't work. Yeah. And uh, I do understand what you mean whenever Marvel seems to have an inability to split the difference, right? Like that is mm -hmm. totally a recurring problem. I would say that currently there is, I get the sense that Rachel has been through hell, you know? I think Lee is conveying it well. Without going into it, which I mean, can be its own thing. Yeah, again, I do think that Rachel has gotten over a lot of this stuff by now. Yeah, insofar she doesn't as always want to Like, she doesn't always want to talk about it. Like, you know, like, she's a survivor. She has survived horrible stuff. But I feel this way about Ilyana, too, actually. Mm -hmm. It's like, Ilyana's at a point where, like, yeah, she was harmed significantly by 
bad people. And she doesn't really feel the need to talk about it anymore because she's dealt with a lot of it. Yeah. So I'd say that it's kind of a nuanced answer, right? Like it's a little bit of both. And I uh, appreciate the question. That's very thoughtful. It's a good question. I just think that the answer is she's a character that outside of Claremont and Davis, no one has seemed that interested in exploring in depth. I mean, Lobdell writes her out almost immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And then when she got brought back, she just became simplified and simplified and simplified over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Until now, when finally the complexity of the character is being really played with again, I think, in a way yeah. that's good. I mean, in X Factor 1, when she starts chrono skimming in the motel room, I was like, oh, Love thank it. God. She's like, a lot of people forget I can do this. I'm like, yeah, including writers. It was yeah. like very... <laughs> And it's like her coolest power. It's the like thing that is that's so unique cool. about her. Yeah, it would be like if Betsy didn't use psychic weapons for Seriously. like ten years, and it was like, remember that she can do that. It's the thing that's cool about her. Yeah, that makes her different from other telepaths. That makes her different than Jean Grey. Like it just right. annoys me so bad whenever they're just like, okay, well, we can't write Jean Grey right now, so let's put Rachel in, and it's like she's nothing like Jean. It sucked when she was just a substitute Jean, and it was particularly bad, I thought, when Teen Jean was around. Yeah, because then it was like you already have a substitute Jean, who is yeah. Jean. Yeah, yeah. Why are we doing this with Rachel? I don't know. It's just not. And that is when she got the turkey coat with the spikes. I was like, at least they're putting her back. Like, it was really the second Jean was back in any form, Rachel started to look like Rachel again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then X-Men Gold was just a weird detour. Whew. Which leads into Lisa Penza, who writes, Hey, Connor and Sarah, first love the pod. Been listening since you did my fave Nightcrawler in episode two. And I've learned to appreciate characters I hadn't before. As an old school Excalibur fan, Nightcrawler super fan, my question is about the baffling decision to have them date in X-Men Gold. I'm still kind of speechless over it. Connor, as a fellow Excalibur fan, what was your take? My take is it's deranged and I hate it. It sucks. What are you doing? Oh, my God. I will say Claremont played with it in the reload period briefly. There's Uh that moment where they're like dressed as pirates or whatever, and they get swept up in the moment or whatever. Like, And this is just Claremont doesn't have lesbian characters. We've talked about this in other episodes. Mm -hmm. Like they're all bi. So I don't think he saw it as like, fundamentally wrong but i certainly did even then i was like no no it's it just doesn't work it doesn't work and it's one of those times it's like you know how i mean all right i'll make a comparison too because i was just reading the issue the most recent issue of captain marvel where like she goes on speed dating and i'm just like i it's like i didn't I was fine just not acknowledging how gay this character is um, <laughs> when you, like, didn't make me acknowledge it by being Think like, about here's how men. bad all of, like, <laughs> the, like... See, that's interesting. I think of Carol as pretty straight, but that's because my Carol referent really ends when she's binary. Like, I'm just sure. not... I haven't really read the recent stuff, so mm-hmm. I don't have a strong opinion on Carol because, like, whenever she turns up now, I'm just like, this is not the character I liked. Sure. I love Carol Danvers, but also, I mean, lots of lots of coding over time. Um, also, lots of people who were like, "This character is totally straight," and like, I feel like right. that's what, the comparison to Rachel, where yeah, I'm just yeah. like, 
when you all try to do that, it just doesn't work. And it super <laughs> doesn't work with Nightcrawler. Like, isn't he like, oh, I just feel like there's like an age gap there. Like, there's just like. So they're actually, the age gap is not that bad because Nightcrawler okay. is younger than you think he is. Right. I'm sure. Kurt and Amanda are actually not that much older than Rachel. Okay. Basically, this is the same problem as the Colossus problem. Oh, yeah. They're two years older than Colossus. Mm-hmm. Kurt turns 21 at his birthday party where Margali and Amanda are introduced. Right. And in my head, Nightcrawler is like almost 40, right? Right. <laughs> so, which is just not like, like... It's not true. Yeah. Yeah. he He's like roughly the same age as... Because it's like sliding time scale together now as like Colossus. So it's not crazy because Rachel's uh-huh. a little older than Kate. Like a couple years older than Kate. So it's like not... Uh-huh. The bigger problem for me is it's like if Colossus and Storm hooked up. Right. Like, it's just so sibling-y to me in the oh, classic totally. material. Yeah. yeah. Which is ironic given that, like, you know, Kurt actually is fucking his sister. But Kurt. this is one sister I don't think Kurt would fuck. But it does make sense that Kurt would confuse his sibling feelings for Rachel with romantic feelings since he's mostly dated his foster sister. I feel very <laughs> weird about this relationship. And I don't know you know it's definitely like they're both not served by it no it harmed both characters that was the thing that was really like because it made nightcrawler look kind of like an asshole i thought yeah it really does he was very condescending to her in a way that i didn't like i didn't enjoy any of that yeah i hated it yeah so as far as i'm concerned it's just like a it's very much of a piece with like the kitty and bobby thing like it's just like we really just don't need to sweat this it could maybe be a funny conversation after she's officially out as a lesbian but sure i don't feel any need to otherwise ever discuss it again ever also in the letters page in x-men gold guggenheim was like if you look at such and such issue and I don't remember the number, but it was an issue of Excalibur and it's the issue of Excalibur where like he pitches her into that demon maw. You know, the one I'm talking about mm-hmm. when they're like barbarian outfits. I'm like, this wasn't a romantic issue. What are you talking about? I've read what this. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? What did you get out of this that I didn't? It's not at all that vibe. Anyway, yeah. whatever. I don't know. I don't, don't like, like it. it is the answer. I don't like it. Joshua Ojeda writes, Hey, Connor, I always considered Rachel one of the most powerful mutants in Marvel, even without the Phoenix Force. You're correct. But since she's no longer an Omega-level mutant, I was wondering, do you think bringing back the daughter of the Phoenix aspect that had been teased one point would be a good thing to explore? You could also explain why she's so often as a fire aura when using her powers long after having lost her connection to the Phoenix. We sort of went over this already. Yeah. I think, unfortunately, the Phoenix is sort of spoken for and, like, is not used particularly well recently. So I I don't see a need to connect her to it directly. Mm -hmm. And her past would explain why like the fire thing is still a thing. Yeah, much like the hound markings, like she just uses aesthetic signifiers of where she's been to because she's claimed that for herself, right? Mm -hmm. Like It makes sense to me. So I... I'm okay with her not being an Omega-level mutant, but it is a little bit like Polaris where I don't understand why she isn't. Yeah. It's like, come on. I mean, if Quentin Quire is, then Rachel should be. Like, That's how on. I feel about it. Come on. You know? That's how I feel about it. So I'll just say that much. Yeah. And move on, basically. Like, it, we don't all have to be Omega-level mutants, but give me a break, right? Like... She was the perfect host of the Phoenix Force for a long is. time. Like, there's like, no she, way that you're a chrono skimmer or, like, the fact that you can, like... There's just no way that Gene and Quentin are Omegas and Rachel isn't. I agree. That's just the bottom line. I don't yeah. get it. 
That's my take on that. Uh-huh. I do think that the point is that Hickman wanted to cut down on how many Omegas there were, which sure. makes sense. Outside of Quentin, who you couldn't take it back because it's his whole gimmick, right? Right. There are no other telepathic. Like, even Xavier is not an Omega-level telepath. It's only Gene and uh-huh. Quentin. But if you can send people through time, like, come on. <laughs> I just feel like it doesn't make sense that Rachel isn't. So that's my that's my hot take. There. Like, it makes perfect sense that Betsy and Emma aren't. They're very sure. powerful yeah. telepaths, but they are more about precision than, like, raw Absolutely. Power. Although in the 80s, Betsy had raw power higher than just about anybody. I mean, she was a very, very powerful telepath. But since they transitioned to like psychic knife land, it's been a little it's been a little different. So I get that. I just but with Rachel, I agree. It doesn't make sense. Much like I think it doesn't make sense that Polaris is not an Omega level as Magneto is because they should be the opposing poles of the Earth. That was the point of the 12 thing. Right. Uh, yep. So anyway. Our last question was kind of a complicated one, so I thought that it would be a good one to end on. Zach Wilson writes, Hi, Connor and Sarah. Welcome back. Thanks for your hard work, Connor. My question about Rachel, a.k.a. the parthenogenic mutant queen of the lesbians, is actually pretty minor. What exactly is her chrono-skimming? Can she time travel, move things through time? How does it work? Was the time travel due to Phoenix or something she can do naturally, though she is the heir to the Phoenix and all of that? Also, if she couldn't be with Kitty for some reason, who should she date? I've already said I think she should date Betsy. That's where I'm at at this point. I'm all about it. I'm on the train. But I also think it'd be fun to see her date Ilyana and Kate be really annoyed that they're dating each other and neither of them is dating her. That would be really funny. Any woman would be fine with me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I just literally need her to be explicitly with women on page. Like, please. I'm desperate. It, like, is painful to It's been 84 years. Like, the gif. But, like, it, it hasn't except, like, it basically has it's it has been yeah it's been like 40 years like it's crazy i was thinking if like i went back in time to talk to my younger self and like what questions my younger self would have for my older self and my younger self would probably be like is rachel summers gay yet and my older self would be like uh no not yet somehow not quite yet on Hmm. page yeah that's wild huh and your younger self would be like the future sucks and you'd be like you don't know the half of it kid (laughs) guess what there's a plague on you know (laughs) this is incredibly actually a very rachel summers moment (laughs) yeah yeah that's sort of the yeah i mean you kind of chrono skimmed yourself so in terms of how the chrono skimming works um rachel can send people's consciousnesses back and forth in time that's like a thing she can do she was only able to travel herself physically through time because of the phoenix so she can't do that anymore which is why after mother iscani's timeline was erased she got lost in the time stream Mm -hmm. so she can't physically time travel but she can presumably still project people's telepathic consciousness forward or backward in time if she Mm -hmm. chooses to i think she can (laughs) yeah but that is like a wacky thing to do you're not going to do that for funsies right it's not like an everyday thing yeah and like it didn't work so well the first time she did it because it didn't actually change anything right like it Mm -hmm. went to the wrong timeline so i think she's just cautious about she's also cautious about meddling with the time stream like you don't want to do that too much that's yeah. how you create problems so. until she creates a lesbian commune in the future correct and then she perfects it and starts messing with time a lot because yeah. she feels like it but that's you know she's much older then that's later days yeah yeah that's when she's sort of like gotten into her destiny style like old and gray lesbian diva mm. moment you Love know it. My bigger question, though, is actually not related to Rachel. 
I was wondering if you could maybe provide an answer or elaboration. Despite reading comics almost my whole life, Hoxbox is when I really started paying attention to the industry as much as I can understand it. You're more informed about this than I am, so are comics in general doing okay? You always hear or see alarmist articles and the like about how comics are dying or DC is shutting down and stuff. Or are any of those things true? I know you've said in the pod, kids don't really read comics anymore, which seems correct, at least anecdotally. I teach 60 kids and only one of them reads superhero comics. And even Austin's run apparently was moving more units than anything is today. You've also mentioned that Nanny outsold the Avengers that one month. What's a good healthy number for a title? At what threshold should I get worried that a favorite title is getting canceled due to low sales? Is buying digital and only buying physical trades okay for sales? It seems odd that comics are struggling when the MCU is like the biggest thing ever right now. So I'm not the most versed in the nitty gritty of this either. I know a lot more about trade publishing, which is what I work in, than I do about comics publishing, which is a very weird niche market. Sarah, do you have insight on this before I take a crack at it? Yeah, I mean, I would say that most of what I have read is that comics are doing much better, but that people are reading a wide berth of things, right? So we mm -hmm. see a lot of different publishers putting out different works and that people are buying comics generally, but they're not necessarily always buying Marvel and DC, right? Right. So I think that that is good. That's basically my wrap up. And I also think that it's good to have services, you know, like Comixology or even like Marvel Unlimited, which is doing mostly stuff that's a few months old at most and then goes way back and is kind of an archive, right, of Marvel's mm -hmm. comics. DC Universe obviously has DC Universe. Both of those services are really good for people if they just want to catch up and they don't want to necessarily be out and buying comics every single like weak, right? Because not yeah. everybody has the ability to do that. And that's what makes it such a niche market, right? Not everybody has access to a comic book store. So if you want to buy things digitally, I think that that's probably great. And I'm sure that it doesn't hurt anybody <laughs> for you to do that. It's better than not buying, obviously. And I mostly yeah. buy in digital. I do a mix. Yeah. The charts that you see when you see a sales chart from Diamond or whatever, like here are the top 20 titles of the month, no digital sales are factored into that. Yeah, Diamond especially would not be telling you about digital sales. Because they don't want digital sales, right? Because oh, that's not their model. What about, you know, we saw with Squirrel Girl and uh, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, those were books that stayed around, you know, up until like issue 50, 60. And it was because they sold at Scholastic Book Fairs, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, that was a completely untapped market for yes. Marvel. So, like, in comic book stores, those books did terribly. And people were just like, oh, like, why isn't that being canceled? And people kept saying it was, like, politically correct. We're keeping these girl comics. It's like, no, they the girl were comics so are good, selling at book fairs. Right. But lots of good books get canceled because they don't sell. Those yes. books were selling, just not in the direct market that you see on charts. We also see the cancel happy thing, right? Where like things aren't really allowed to flourish. Like yes. it's like make or break all of the time because literally these companies are all owned by like cell phone companies and stuff. So they're all owned by megacorps at this point. So yeah, I mean, it's bottom line in a way that it never was. The fact of the matter is, I think that Marvel is in a better position because the megacorp Disney that owns Marvel sees Marvel Comics as an IP farm that's very lucrative, right? Like the comics create content that then they can turn into the film and TV stuff, which is actually where they make money. So they're kind of okay, I think, more with things running at a loss. That's the vibe I get. Mm -hmm. DC, because their multimedia properties outside of like the CW television shows haven't really taken off in the same way, feels like it's a lot more ruthless. 
these days, especially after the big bloodbath that just happened over there staff-wise. Oh, yeah. That was rough. I think the rumors you hear about DC going away are probably very overstated. Mm-hmm. But I do think we're going to see possibly less titles from them in the future. I think we're going to see more digests and less monthlies. Like, I don't know. We're going to have to see. I think that people are trying new models to see what will sell. Mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is the manga market significantly cut into the U.S. comics market when it exploded here. And also just people watch TV more than they read comics, like just period, or than they read anything, you know, like it's Mm -hmm. just a it's a different world and a different marketplace. Comics are also at this point pretty expensive, you know, it's becoming more and more of a niche market. I would say, like Sarah, my sense is that comics, particularly Marvel comics, which I keep track of more than DC, are doing okay now, but it's still not great. It's certainly never going to be anywhere like it was in the 80s and 90s ever again. I just don't think that that's in the cards, right? In the 80s and 90s, though, wasn't that in a lot of ways became kind of harmful for the market as well, right? Oh, absolutely. Because, like, those, yeah. like, mega sells and stuff like that and selling, like, 8 million copies of people that didn't really read the comics. To me, that was more of a fluke than anything else, right? That's what I'm saying is you're it's chasing a, yeah, you're never going to get back to that moment. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of what like a healthy number for a title is, it's just really impossible to say because yeah, here's the thing. It depends on what the expectations for the title are. Yeah. Going back 10 years to like the New 52 launch, right? I remember which titles got canceled there. Anything that was selling under about 20,000 got canceled. And then Justice League International got canceled though at like 37 or something Mm -hmm. because they expected it to sell better than that. In trade publishing, we have a similar thing where if a book sold for a six-figure advance, they're expecting it to sell a lot of copies. And if it doesn't, that's a failure. If a book sold for a smaller advance and sells a lot less than that book that is a disappointment did, it might be considered a rousing success because it depends on what the expectations are for a given title. I doubt, for instance, that Marvel expects Black Knight to sell as much as Venom. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So if Black Knight sells at their expectation level, they might be thrilled with that, even if it sells 30,000 less copies than Venom. That's what I'm saying. So it really just varies by title. I don't think you should be worried about any cancellations at the X office right now. I really don't. Yeah, exactly. That's been topping the charts for a minute. So I mean, and even when it isn't topping the charts, they're all selling fine. Like, Cable is ending, but that's clearly because Jerry Duggan's completing whatever story he's telling. Totally. Yeah. You know, like, I don't think anything's ending at the X office right now unless they want to end it. Yeah. Because it's the best that X-Men's been selling in a very long time, I think. Yeah. And even when X-Men was bad, it sold well. Mm-hmm. Frankly. Yeah. So, like, it's never going to, again, we're never going to get to 1991, but that's never going to happen for anybody. I mean, back in the day, Excalibur, like bad Excalibur in the late 90s was still cracking like 100,000 sales. Yeah, for sure. You know, Mm -hmm. like it was just a different world. And we're never going to quite get there again. And there's more comics now, which is cool. Like there's like different comics. It's just a very different world. So I don't think raw sales numbers are what you can look at because what decides whether a title continues or is canceled or becomes a mini or goes from a mini to an ongoing or any number of things are going to be internal profit loss analysis things that we're not privy to and that probably vary by title. Mm -hmm. 
It's very complicated, yeah. That's me extrapolating from how it works in trade publishing, and I imagine it's the same way in comics publishing, and that's the sense I get from any conversation I've had with comics publishers because I do talk to them occasionally in work capacities. So Mm -hmm. that's my answer to that. Basically, like, don't look at those charts and stress. It's not worth it because you don't actually know anything that's going on under the hood. And don't be too credulous about clickbaity articles about how something's going to get canceled until you hear something. All right. That's how I feel about it. So with that, Sarah, is there anything else you'd like to say about Rachel Summers before we start to wrap? I just love her so much. And talking about her here has made me love her even more. Yeah, same. Now I'm like fiending to reread Classic Excalibur, which I just read because I bought the Omnibus, but I want to read it again. That's pretty. <laughs> I like and it. Omnibus 2 is coming. Like, I'm so excited that they're already doing the volume two, which is going to be all the Davis stuff mm-hmm. that's without Claremont. And that is where all of that Rachel and Megan stuff happens that I really love. Yeah. So. Why don't you... Well, first, let's just plug the fact that soon, I believe next week, I will be the guest on Bitches on Comics. So I'm very excited to have that go out. I got really like weirdly personal. We were having some technical issues. So a lot of it is just like me talking for a long time because (laughs) like the mics kept dropping out. So sorry about that, everybody. But if you ever wanted to listen to like my therapy session through the lens of Emma Frost and Madeline Pryor, I think it's a good time. So Mm -hmm. I'm a little nervous about it, but I I had a lot of fun. So hopefully it'll be good. Yeah. Other than that, why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on the web and plug anything that you want to plug, anything and everything. Just take it away. Of course. So you can find me at Sarah Century on Twitter. I also have a webpage called sarahcentury.com. And I currently am actually, as soon as I get off of this call, I'm starting another call, (laughs) which is (laughs) going to be about my publication, Decoded Pride, which is 30 days of speculative fiction by queer authors. So during Pride, because, you know, people have complicated feelings about Pride and there's a lot of corporate Pride and like things like that that really kind of sucks. So we kind of wanted to do something where we're always focusing on independent voices and a lot of people, I guess, maybe that don't always feel totally heard either in like, you know, corporate Pride atmosphere or, you know, you know, in any number of places. So I Mm -hmm. feel like it's good for us to do this. And I think that, yeah, we have pre-sales up. You can buy last year's issue. And uh, tonight we're going to pick out all the stories. There's always really great stories in it. And so check that out at decodedpride.com. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus transcripts as they go up at Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page for the podcast, where you can also find a link to the Discord server and to the Patreon. Please, please sign up for the Patreon. I love you. That's right. You. You know what? I love you too. (laughs) We all love everybody here, as long as you subscribe to the Patreon. No, I'm kidding. I love you even if you don't subscribe to the Patreon. (laughs) I love you just for listening. I do. Next week's episode will feature returning guest Anthony Oliveira. We will be talking about a topic somewhat related to this week's episode, Strife, the evil clone of Nathan Christopher Summers. And yes, we're doing the Strife episode before the Cable episode. You're just going to have to roll with it. We're going to make it work. (laughs) If you have questions about Strife, please email cerebrocast at gmail.com and Tony and I will do our best to answer them. 
Until next time, everybody, thanks for listening and bye. Bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is X-Men.